Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Tonight, we're going to talk about ideas and ripple management, and this comes from a question asked by Susan, which Jilly is going to read for us, and then we're going to get started. Okay, and I did edit out some uh, clarifying comments that Susan had put in, um, so this is not the entirety of the original question, but here we go. Um, Susan's question is, we all get ideas that are fun in the moment, but we know immediately or instinctively just won't work either because you aren't the writer for it or because the idea itself is problematic. But what about when you get an idea that looks good on the surface, but turns into a massive time and energy suck? How can you tell when the idea itself is the problem versus when you should push through and solve the issues? Okay. Um, for me, this comes down to ripple management. And knowing and seeing my ripples at the beginning of an idea and also personal investment. Like how invested are you in the idea? Are you willing to do the work to get where you need to be to write it? Are you picking the right place to start your story? Are you using the right character point of view? Are you in the right fandom if you're writing fan fiction because sometimes you'll have an idea and you'll think okay I think this will fit really well here and then you start writing and you're like no you know actually I think that might actually work better if I did this and I actually have an example of this and I may put them on wild hair just to show you guys the difference because it's very subtle so I have an idea where um Jim Ellison is an online sentinel and he's an alpha sentinel and he's been online for a year and they have brought guides from all over the world to meet him. Um, but he's very strict about it. And he won't accept anybody as in, to meet unless they 100% consent. And so he's dying. Uh, and he's not going, I mean, he, they, they just, he, they're preparing for um, end of life. And his father finds out there is a guide, um, an American guide that Jim hasn't met. Because that guide is stuck in South America in an embassy. Um, yeah, I think I have the Sentinel version on um, EAD. Um, and Jim is like, uh, and Jim's dad's like, well, we're going to go get him. I don't care because they've declared Blair Sandberg dead, but he's not. He came out of the jungle um, and he's in the embassy and they're having a hard time getting through the bureaucracy. Well, his dad goes down there and gets through the bureaucracy. He's just like, oh, fuck it. I'm going to go down there. I'm going to fix this. Throws some money around, rescues Blair, brings him back to Cascade and they meet. Now I wrote this and I was really I was really satisfied with it but I felt like there was just something it wasn't I felt like I needed something a little bit bigger so I rewrote it where it's John Shepard who's online as a sentinel on earth and his father finds out that there's an online guide an, an alpha guide that he hasn't met and that guy is in Pegasus he doesn't know where McKay is um and he throws a fit because they're keep the, the SGC is keeping you know this guide from meeting his son and he wants to know why and he almost outs the Stargate program in, in his efforts to get a hold of McKay so they have no choice but to dial Atlantis to divert power from all kinds of sources all over the United States to get McKay but to protect the program because Patrick Shepard's losing his shit and he has too much money and they can't contain him and so they bring McKay back <laughs> to Earth to meet John. And then John goes to Atlantis with McKay and a pride of um, Sentinels. And uh, Marshall Sumner hates him on site. So, but uh, it's, so I have two versions of the same idea, right? And I wrote both of them and I didn't finish either one of them. 
And fundamentally, the idea was fine when I started it and when I wrote it. But as my viewpoints changed about sentinels and guides, and um, I moved away from concepts that I'd kind of been incepted into in the sentinel fandom, I felt like the basic... More indoctrinated into. Yeah, 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 true. Um, The more problematic I found the idea... But I did explore it from two different perspectives, from two different fandoms, right? Trying to make this idea work. Um, but it just didn't. So I still have them both. Um, the Jim Ellison and Blair Sandberg edition is on EAD. Um, I have several works on progress for the Sentinel that just kind of fell apart on me. And I could not figure out. And I thought originally it was just because of how shitty the fandom was to me. Not not the whole fandom. Some individuals in that fandom. Um, but looking back on it now, I think that I was already having problems with the, with the inherent concept that a Sentinel could not survive without a guide. Which is the basis of both stories. Which is the, which is the base foundation of the idea. That both John and Jim are dying. And they're going to die if they don't bond with a guide. Um, And that was something that was really popular in the Sentinel fandom. That guides were required. um, That they weren't. um, And that's also the basis of how guides lost a lot of rights. And they got turned into slaves. And I mean it was just. It's it's a really. That yeah that that whole fragile Sentinel thing. Um, And as I matured in that idea of the Sentinel. And um, the Sentinels are known universe. I moved away from that. So that idea kind of fell apart for me. Not so much that it was a bad idea. It's just that it became problematic to me personally. To write. And that's just one example of how. An idea can go from. Oh I love this. to Oh. I wish this didn't suck. <laughs> and yeah, the basic concept is so concrete that I'm not sure what to do with it, how to rewrite it. Um, I'll figure it out one day if I want to, but um, I did set it aside. And there are some ripples in there that you know that are inherent. It's like how much consent did all those guys really have? Because um, there's a guilt factor. If you don't go meet the sentinel and he dies, what if he was your sentinel and you let him die? Right. And what if you met him, he was your sentinel, and you said no, and he died? I mean, that's a lot of pressure to put on somebody. It's like, right. oh, this is your sentinel. Um, but what if I don't want to be with you? But that was like the, that was one of the founding concepts in the sentinel fandom at the time. Um, and it did, I, I guess, you know, looking back on it, you're right. It, it was indoctrination. Because I was introduced to the sentinel fandom through fan fiction. Yeah, we we learn sometimes. So we I learn read fan fiction before I ever watched the show. Yeah, and sometimes we do learn a fandom through its tropes, and we go, you know, we think, um, and then you think that you kind of need to write those tropes, like you know, it's like thinking like there was a there was a point in time when there was one fandom I was involved in, and I kind of it's funny five and one sort of fizzled out for a long time, and I swear nine and one's bringing them back, but there was like this one fandom. It was like I swear it was like it was obligatory. You had to write a five and one. Um, and the thing is, I never liked five and ones. So, I have one. I have one five and one, and I apologize for it in my author note. They they've grown on me. Um, probably recently, probably because there's some really cute ones in nine one one. Where five, you know, five times this happened, and one time this happened. Um, the, the it's a it's a it's a style. It's it's not really a trope. It's more of a style of writing. Yeah, mine is Monsters Inc. Where they go off world and meet 
six monsters basically, and the last one is a dragon that John adopts and brings home. Yeah, sort of so, like five times yeah. Jilly wrote a story that didn't have dragons in it, and the one time she did, and everybody thought she liked nothing but dragons. Um, <laughs> you know, not that I have a problem with dragons, I don't, but you know, it, of the mythical creatures, it's probably the one I identify with almost the least. <laughs> and yet, and yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes you get a really good idea, right? You, you, uh, and, but you don't, if ripple management isn't your, isn't in your wheelhouse, it, you need to get it in your wheelhouse. Uh, there are, there are a couple skills that I think that all pantsers and plotters and plotsers need, and that is ripple management. You need to know what's going to, what should, what should logically happen as a consequence of the changes that you make. Right. But even if you, even if you can't do it ahead of time, you need to be able to do it in the writing, but it's sort of like, um, let's talk about a ripple that, and the thing is sometimes people write an idea and they ignore the obvious ripple. They're like, and the thing is sometimes it's even kind of, they try to lampshade it. Like it's obvious this is an issue, but it's not a problem in this story because these characters wouldn't do that. So let's talk about that. Um, next spot in the BDSM oh story where you can force it by touching a submissive in the right spot. You can force them into subspace and therefore make them do whatever you want. Um, it was a thing for a little while. I, I kept running into fix with that in it. And it was like, somebody thought it was really neat, I guess, instant subspace. And the idea, I guess they found it like really like, I don't know. I, 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 I've tried to sometimes give people the benefit of the doubt about why they find a trope appealing. And I could see the person writing it trying to go, you know, that this, that trying to like lampshade the problem, which was that the submissive had complete trust in this Dom, that this, he wouldn't abuse his trust and touch him there if they hadn't negotiated to be that kind of thing. But I think most people, whether you're good with ripples or not, see the inherent problem with that idea. Even at least on a surface level, at least at, at, at the basis of the idea of somebody, of, of somebody, people existing with that kind of a vulnerability, even if you can't articulate all the potential world building ripples, like it, honestly, in my opinion, if that existed, I think submissives would have gone off to conclaves with giant high walls and would be shooting any dominant that came anywhere near them. Um, at the very like, least, they would have, um, combination locked collars that only they could unlock right they'd have metal metal covering that spot and it's just it's honestly it's it's one of the from a ripple perspective one of the ugliest things i've ever seen in a story the idea that you could touch someone in a spot that allows you to subvert their will um and the thing is it yeah was, we i'll be running around like mandalorians <laughs> right <laughs> So sometimes people go, oh, I'm not good with ripples. And I go, okay, well, what are the problems with this? And the thing is, that's one of the things you can do is you can start, you know, experimenting with ripple, with, with ripple stuff. It's like, look at some problematic stuff or, or sometimes, and I know this is like, this is something you do quite privately between you and somebody you trusted to talk through stuff like this is take a story that makes you feel uncomfortable and start talking through the ripples of why it makes you uncomfortable. What are the implicit problems with what you read? that bother you and look through what the author might have missed and kind of get some practice going through that. 
Um, I mean, there have been times when I've read something and I thought, this, something about this is really putting me off and I don't know what it is. And there's been time when I've been writing something where something put me off and I'm like, what am I doing here? That's And sometimes you need to set it aside and come back to it in a couple of weeks or in my days a couple. You know, in my case, these days, a couple of days because fibro. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> or leave yourself some really detailed notes. <laughs> and so, yeah, and sometimes it's kind of hard to put your finger on what's wrong with something. And that can be in your own work or in somebody else's work. Um, one of my biggest problems in the 911 fandom is the assumption that Buck must apologize excessively for the lawsuit he won. Yeah, we were talking about that today earlier. Is it? Buck wasn't wrong for filing that lawsuit. The way that he went about the lawsuit was bizarre because why he didn't go through his union rep, it doesn't make any sense to me at all. But whatever. It, it was bizarre. But Buck wasn't wrong. He he had every, Bobby was standing between Buck and his career. Was, his career. He had been cleared by his doctors and by the department to come back to work. And Bobby said no. Because he was projecting his own issues with injury recovery and substance abuse onto Buck. Right. So Buck wasn't wrong to file, uh, at least he'll file a grievance with his union. Now, I would um, like to write it where he does file agreements with his union and ends up going to a new station or maybe like like the rescue thing that you talked about before. Just, just something different. Just like, fuck you. You yeah. know what? Fuck you. Okay, I, if, if, this is, if this is the game that you want to play, we can play that game. Fine. I actually want him to like have that dinner moment with Bobby where Bobby tells me he's done and Buck has been recruited already by another station because of his performance during the tsunami. And Buck just kind of looks at him and says, are you sure this is the line you want to draw? And Bobby says, I don't think you're ready. And Buck says, okay. And gets up and walks out. And he doesn't break contact with Eddie and Christopher. He goes to Eddie and says, I'm leaving. And I'm, I'm leaving the 118. Bobby's not going to let me come back to work. So I've been offered a position with, I actually figured, I actually looked up which station handles um, search and rescue. So I've got it in a note somewhere. Um, and, you know, goes and does that for a while. And I would like it to eventually cycle back that he does get make it back to the 118. But um, the other thing somebody pointed out was that, um, the, I think I think it was Jess pointed out that um, if he's been cleared medically, is are they going to keep paying his disability just because Bobby refuses to let him come back to work? I mean, usually you because only get dis- no, yeah, because usually you only get disability payments when your doctor says you're medically disabled, not when your boss says you're medically disabled. Because one of my one of my nephews got hurt on the job. He was he broke his leg he was off work he got cleared for duty um to turn to return to work but his boss uh didn't schedule him for two months because the boss was irritated about having to pay workman's comp um he eventually did go back on the job um stayed there for six months and then and then and then went to a new job because his boss was just a complete beast um so hose beast hell beast whatever you want to call them but no if Bobby's keeping him from returning to work, but he can be scheduled, that means Buck's not getting paid unless he's using paid time off. And he probably wouldn't have a lot. There would be like, he'd have like disability leave. Then there would be accrued sick leave. And then there would be vacation leave. But that would run out. Yeah. I mean, 
even assuming he hadn't, Buck had only been on the job two and a half years at that point. So I'm not 100% sure exactly how many days of vacation, but let's say that he gets four weeks a year. Um, assuming he's never used any of his sick, usually vacation is, let's say vacation is combined, sick vacation time. Let's say he hasn't used any of it. That means he's got at most 12 weeks, right? No, 10 weeks of accrued vacation. Um, Plus he, he might have some unemployment or he could be going to light duty, but light duty probably would not pay as much as an active duty fire, an active duty firefighter. Well, when they had him, a fire marshal is a full-time position, even though it's considered a different, even though it's a light duty position, it is a full-time position. So I doubt he would be um, making significantly less because they have to have fire marshals. Mm-hmm. Um, I did read a summary where he didn't go back to work and he didn't sue and he ended up being homeless because he couldn't pay his bills and he, and he, and he didn't tell any of them. I think that someone went to his apartment and found somebody else living in it and he had to fess up that he'd been living in his car because he wasn't making enough money to pay for rent. But I didn't read it because I, 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 I'm just like, you know, it's bullshit. The firefighter fire in LA would make about, it, it depends upon how you figure it because their work week is weird. Um, and there's a certain percentage of their salary. They make about 65 to 70 to $85,000 a year, depending upon what they do. Now, Buck's an engineer. So he's actually in the LAFD ranks. He is um, only, the only rank above him is captain. Um, so um, they make a fair bit of, a fair bit of their weekly, of their wage is, overtime based but if you figure it if you figure their rate on a on a 40 hour work week it's between 30 and 35 dollars an hour but it actually probably is more like 20 to 25 because a certain percentage of their weekly pay is calculated in overtime because the way they work weird shifts um they're working oh, at hey, least 911 um writers firefighters in la work on a 24-hour rotation and they do in most major cities. I mean, like one of the only notable exceptions to that was New York. Um, and New York went to a 24 hour rotation during the panorama. So, um, so when I see Buck or Eddie working a half day, in a thick, it just throws me completely out. I'm like, dude, you can look at their schedule online, literally. And, and they get assigned, they get assigned to a shift and they, that's it. So like when I see Buck and Eddie not working the same shift, I mean, sometimes they'll pick up an extra shift covering for somebody else, but they have a limit on how many they have to do before they're forced to take a Kelly day, which is mandatory time off. So, you know, firefighters can pick up a lot of overtime, but they have, they're only allowed to work so many hours in a row before they have to take downtime. Um, some yeah, places some do 12-12, but not... Not um, not LA and not Austin. And actually most big cities abandoned the 1212 um, experiment. It's mostly something that smaller towns do. L I mean, New York was one of the few really big cities that had a 12 hour rotation. Now paramedics are usually on a different schedule than firefighters, but. Um, That's also a thing about LA, um, LA, LAFD. Um, Buck and Eddie both are supposed to be firefighter paramedics, right? No. Um, no? Chim and Hen, Chim and Hen are for firefighter paramedics. But I saw all firefighters in Los Angeles got paramedic training. No EMTs. They're all EMTs. EM okay. Every single one of them is required in LA. Um, now Eddie is between paramedic and 
EMT and that he's a combat medic. And the army basically takes people and gives them an EMT training and then hammers, slaps on a bunch of a weird combination of paramedic training and honestly what amounts to field surgery <laughs> and throws them out in the world. So in some ways they're more qualified than a paramedic and in some ways they're way less qualified than a paramedic, but Eddie's not actually a paramedic. So anytime he's putting in an IV in that show, he shouldn't be. Mm, okay. So the EMT. I need to look up the difference between those two before I start my, you know, doing any serious writing. It's about... It's <laughs> Not about, that I plan on focusing on medical details, because no. <laughs> it's about 1,400 hours. Now, in some countries, EMT is a paramedic, but in the U.S., there's a distinction. EMT is about 150 to 200 hours of training, and depending upon your state, paramedic is 15 to 1,800 hours, and maybe more. So it's 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 more than a thousand. It's all, it could be as much as fifteen hundred hours difference in training. Um, but the thing, but if if Bobby is keeping Buck off the roster, that doesn't mean he has the ability to keep him off every roster in the city. So he should have been able to walk into practically any station in the city, at, you know, for a job because he. Buck is probably one of the most, now realistically speaking, he's one of the most well-known members of the fire department in that city on the show. He survived the truck bombing. Um, he was he um, um, he's gone viral a couple of times. Um, he's gotten a lot of press, so they know who he is. And if he expressed interest in another job in another area, he just came out of recertification at the top of his game. He broke records. Right? Yeah. Yes. So, well, yeah. In, in <laughs> Jilly's story, he's like a he's like a he's a, um he's like Uber. But um, Buck shouldn't have a problem walking into another station. Bobby doesn't have the authority, especially after his past was revealed, to keep him completely off the job. He might be able to keep him out of one eighteen. Realistically, he might be only able to keep him off his own shift. And maybe even only off of his truck, because depending upon how you interpret what they've done on the show, there could be two captains on that on a, on each shift. Um, that is not a single apparatus single apparatus firehouse. Um, it's probably a light company, which would be one captain, but they don't run it like a light company. There are too many people. So anyway, that's that's going down a rat hole. But there could be two captains on a single shift. I mean, it's my head canon that they're a shift. So he they, could be on B thing, or C. Yeah, the, the only thing we know is that he's not um, B shift. No, he's not B shift. Because the guy who caused the jinx is on B shift. And that's definitely not that. So, so it's A um, or C. I, I think the thing is they act like Bobby is like in charge of the house. So in order to kind of make the canon work i sort of inserted a rank into the in my own like world building i sort of inserted a rank that doesn't actually exist in the lafd which is shift lieutenants who run the other shifts so there's like lieutenant on each shift and bobby's on a shift there's lieutenant for b shift we just gotta make it work for you right, but that's Always. to make it work with the weird canon um in right. reality there'd probably be three captains for that house one for each shift so there's always a captain on duty that makes sense to me they want a captain at the vast majority of calls. And any they want LAFD's goal is to have a captain attend almost every major call that goes out. That's probably a mixture of uh, people management and liability. Yeah. And because they have a ladder truck, um, 
they're implicitly a bigger station than um, than a, than a single apparatus firehouse, which would just have a triple engine, um, which would respond to like car accidents and stuff like that. And the triple engines are the the pumper trucks with the they can they have hoses, they can pump water, and they hold water. The thing about Buck's character is that he wants to be wanted. It would take nothing for one of those other captains to come along. I mean, it could be anybody. It could be The Rock. It's going to be along. The Rock. I'm telling you. <laughs> to come along with and his... say, hey, come play with us. You're still on blood centers and you need a little bit more training, but we can handle that because you're a badass. I wanted to write um, the story I'd plotted was that when he, that, that, that they call out, you know, his, the, the, the Ray's, Ray's unit to come help with search and rescue during um, the tsunami. And they're the ones who get to the fire truck and get all the people down off of it because Buck's already gone by then. And he asked them how they all got up there. And there's a fucking fire hose strung across the middle of the road. And they said, oh, there was this fire to fireman, but he he went after this kid who fell off and we don't know what happened to him. And he figures, he gets videos and pictures, he figures out who it is. Then he's the one who goes to Buck's apartment and says, so, I hear you had surgery and you broke all these records with recertification and then and then they were told you you couldn't come back to work and then you got in a fucking tsunami and you saved dozens of people's lives and, you know, you nearly knocked one of my guys out of the boat with that fire hose in the middle of the road, but I'm not going to hold it against you. Um, matter of fact, I'd like to offer you a job because <laughs> you know you're you're, you're kind of. What fierce, would be man. really interesting is if Buck actually tried to get into his unit when he was coming out of the academy, and then 118 was his second choice. Oh, that would be interesting because it may be that Ray just didn't have room for him. So he might have already been on Ray's list. Or maybe Ray just doesn't take rookies. He tells them, "You, you, you go get, you know, get the, get the, you know, shine taken off a little bit, and you let me know." Yeah, and then he can go back to whatever he has to do to get the certifications he needs to work urban search and rescue, nine one one. Oh, uh, Ray is oh, yeah, uh, okay. San Andreas. It, it's not a really fan. Well, it was a movie like, that Arl Jilly couldn't watch until she moved. I did. Yeah, <laughs> it was an issue. Um, <laughs> But I wouldn't use the San Andreas canon because he's actually part of the LAFD. Um, so that is canon. You know he what is was part really of the funny? LAFD. The other day I was in the kitchen and I was thinking about, um, you know, just, I was just, just my, my mind sometimes when I'm cooking will just go off on little tangents, tangents. And remember that, I don't even know what movie it's in where Rock grabs a dude and he, the Rock grabs a dude and he has it's, him. It's in. I know what you're about to say, the, the big arm. It's in uh, Rampage. Rampage. Yeah, it's a big arm. It's okay. You know, wouldn't it's it be okay. kind of funny if, if, if Buck said that to somebody on the scene? Yes. Well, the thing is, I actually was... <laughs> <laughs> what, if Ray, what if Ray uses the big arm as part of his recruiting? He goes, and I got the big arm. And, and Buck's like, is that a selling point? And Ray's like, you tell me. He's like, actually, it kind of is. <laughs> like, I like the big arm. <laughs> He's got a guy in a chokehold, right? <laughs> or a sleeper his... hold. And the guy's fighting him. He's like, yeah, 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 baby. It's a big arm. Just, just, just relax. It's a big arm. It's hysterical <laughs> because it's so out of the blue. He, just, he gets this guy down. He goes, that's a big, yeah, that's a big arm. That's a big arm. Just go ahead and give in. It's just like, <laughs> you got nowhere to go. <laughs> he's just talking about how big his arm is. <laughs> it would be really funny if, if Buck said that to somebody on the scene because they lost their shit and he has to take them down. <laughs> and he's like, what the fuck did you just say? <laughs> He's like, man, I was just telling him the truth. He had nowhere to go. That is a big arm, don't you think? Look at that arm. 
<laughs> it really is a big arm these days. I mean, he worked out a little bit too much during the quarantine. <laughs> anyway, I got really amused and I was laughing all through cooking my chicken fettuccine. I I watched or my scene, chicken alfredo because like, I use penny pasta, not fettuccine. <clears throat> Penne. I watched Rampage multiple. It, it's a fun. If you haven't seen um, Rampage, it is a fun. Um, is a fun movie just to kind of. It, it's not a great movie, but it is it is entertaining. And um, what Jeffrey Dean Morgan also is great in it. But the first time I watched that, um, uh, watched watched that scene, it was just it was great. Did I lose my buddy? I did. Um, but yeah, I would I would dearly love to have have time. The only reason, honestly, the only reason I haven't started on that story is because I've got like three nine one one things in process, and I need to get them done. So, um, but sometimes, um, let me just start, I'm reading something in the chat. Um, when it comes to like those, the obvious ripples of, of an idea, um, or something like that, sometimes you can see immediately, wow, that doesn't work. And sometimes you don't know that it's not going to work until you dig into it, or you don't know what's bothering you about it until you dig into it. And I think the least optimal angle is that you don't figure out what's bugging you about it um until you're in the writing and that kind of sucks is you know you're 20 or 30k in and all of a sudden you know your story falls apart on you because you hadn't seen the plot crater that was coming because you missed the ripples and that's usually where those those things happen um i was over here talking and my i was muted I knew you were muted, I'm, but I, I figured you did it on purpose. Um, well, I did do it on purpose to, to type, but then I forgot to unmute myself. But yeah, I agree with everything you said. <laughs> but also, we need to acknowledge that sometimes an idea that you think is great just sucks. You know, I've talked about it before. There was one day, I got so jazzed late one night about this <laughs> idea that I got. I had come on, it was right after we had finished one of those three Sentinel Challenge things. I think it was the year I finished ridiculously early. I think I was done by the 10th or something like that. Anyway, I was really vexed with myself by finishing Rough Trade so early. And um, I kept working on Sentinel ideas. And I just, I started writing another story one night. And I get up in the morning and I'm re- reading over what I wrote. And I went, why did I think that was a good idea last night? And my idea basically was a unit, an entire unit of Navy SEALs who are all unbonded Sentinels. All of them. <sighs> I, just go ahead. Just go ahead and let it out. I mean. Well. I. It it wouldn't take much to take down that whole team, would it? <laughs> no, not at all. It was It was just. <sighs> I wrote it. I, I, I wrote, I probably got seven or eight K written and I was so jazzed about it. When I went to bed, I woke up the next morning. I reread it. I went, what the fuck was I on last night? I, I mean, not- basically it's a setup for a guide to come along and get a Sentinel harem. If, if that's what you want. <laughs> no, no one will ever read this, this garbage. Um, there's, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, but the thing is, it wasn't that, it wasn't that the, like the character dynamics or anything were bad of what I had written. And I could salvage it for a different, some of, I could salvage probably about 80% of what I wrote to something else. But it was the fundamental idea that this unit was all unbonded Sentinels. And here's, <laughs> here's, here was the thing I wrote, which was that 
it was, so you've got, there were two fire teams. Fire teams are usually four to six people, I believe, with the SEALs. And so there's two fire teams. And so it was, um, and I had to be six man teams, I think. And so there's 12 unbonded Sentinel Navy SEALs. Oh, too bad it wasn't seven, because then it could have been Tony Dinozo and the seven SEALs. Right. Well, it could have, I, I could always change that. And <laughs> they're doing, they, they're doing backup, um, not backup. They're providing support for um, the Somalia op. And um, all of a sudden they get recon, you know, saying there's an unbonded guide being tortured in, in there. And this, this one sentinel's coming unglued, the guy doing recon. And, you know, Steve gets all up and gives face. Why didn't you tell us that you your man was an unbonded guide? And gives like he's not an unbonded guide. And so you've got like twelve unbonded seals listening to an unbonded guy getting tortured. And I was like, and I woke up the next morning going, <sighs> I mean, I don't even have the excuse of smoking pot. I don't know what was going on with me. I really don't. But I read it the next morning. It's like all the problems with this idea that I thought was so brilliant at two o'clock in the morning. Um, I just was like. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Because it, it seemed like a good idea at the time, which is the which is what, what the book of my life would be called. Um, um well, I mean you could make half of them guides and bond them all together. Yeah, I mean so I could work because even a bonded sentinel's not gonna do well with a guide being tortured. So I mean the well, you could leave Steve unbonded, of course. Yeah, mothership. Yeah, well, naturally. Um and I could certainly leave the Steve being all up in Gibbs grill about Gibbs lack of disclosure um in place but it was just i was so vexed with myself that i you know that i thought that was a good idea because it wasn't a good idea on the face of it right and most people listening to this are going oh jillian (laughs) (laughs) sometime in the future about 12 or 1500 people are going to do a porn head tilt at that oh Um, I definitely could change it. That's not. It's not a matter of could I change the idea. That's not. That's not the problem. It's not. It's not. Could I salvage any of this? I certainly could. Um, it was just a matter of I got like seven or eight k into this craziness, thinking that that was a good idea. It was. It was never a good idea. It. I will. It probably was sleep deprivation, perhaps pain medication. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'd have to look up the year. Um. <coughs> There, there might have been a traumatic brain injury at work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, and that's, I, I don't mean that flippantly, that that could actually be what, what was going on. Um, but the thing is, is that it, it didn't reveal itself. I mean, it did reveal itself to me to the next day. When I'd had some sleep, I was like, oh my God, that's so... Well. But usually, I know that something like that is not a great idea from the jump. Sometimes there are first circumstances where you trip into it not being a good idea until you're all of a sudden you're sitting there trying to write how, you know, 12 Sentinels are maintaining their control. And I'm like, well, how are they maintaining their control? Huh? I think I should get some sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Then I wake up and go, why did I think this was a good idea? The unit wouldn't be all sent. Even if it was, even if half of them are guides, you wouldn't have a unit of all Sentinels and guides anyway. It doesn't even make sense. No, They'd be spread out through the whole team system, wouldn't they? Yeah, I mean, unless you had, I mean, I could see them having a, um, maybe a single fire team that was, that would come together for a specific purpose, um, where they needed, like, two sentinels and two guides out in the field to do highly covert work or something. I don't know, maybe, but, um, I don't need to, 
yeah, I, anything that horrifies me, anything that I put in a folder that goes, oh my God, what was I thinking is, is not something I'm going to need. I mean, I have a what the fuck folder of shit that nobody will ever see. Uh, because it's like, well, I don't, I don't try, I don't want to, or try to project a, a, an image of myself as a perfect writer. I also don't set out to purposefully embarrass myself. The only thing worse than secondhand embarrassment is firsthand embarrassment. <laughs> I just don't get it. I, I hate situational comedies and slapstick and all that stuff because I hate to see somebody humiliated. It makes me so uncomfortable. I can't even read it. I can't read it. I can't watch it. Well, there's a reason why mo most of my nightmares involve me being naked in a public place. <laughs> I just, I can't handle it. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, yeah. That's a, that's a. But you know, it's sometimes... there's a 911 fic that I kind of wanted to read, where Eddie was going to propose to um, Anna, and it was clear that he was going to be rejected. And then I realized he was going to take her to a party at Bobby's house and ask her to marry him in front of everyone and knowing how it was going to end i could not read it i was like oh oh no oh eddie i'm so sorry click bye <laughs> i can't i can't Poor read eddie. it <laughs> i'm sure it was devastating he might have cried <laughs> i couldn't i couldn't read it <laughs> go have a street fight <laughs> I'd much rather read that. <laughs> Not that I want to read Street Fighting. I'm just saying that would have been less traumatic for me than him being rejected in front of his entire fire family. Right? That's true, Ellie. That's true. That whole rotating restaurant thing horrified me. What about the escalator? And the escalator. Oh, God. Yeah. And the plane? Well, the and plane the wasn't public. That plane, that was public enough. She I mean, said you tell, yes. She and said she yes. Left him. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, she had, in the sense that he had to tell them, oh, well, I was, I faked an airplane disaster so she would read my proposal in the emergency manual. And they all just kind of looked at him like, what is the matter with you? This is a case of where everybody saw the problem with this except for him. Um, so, um, you like an idea. Sometimes as a writer, you start down an idea. Now, I will say that there's a, there's, there's a thing sometimes. Sometimes you have a vision for an idea and nobody else gets your vision. And it doesn't mean that you're off. It just means sometimes it's hard to articulate exactly what you want for a story. Sometimes you're just not good at Maybe you're not great at explaining it. Sometimes I'm not great at explaining my vision for a story. Um, and sometimes even if I explained it perfectly, people are just like, maybe I'll have to read it to get it. I remember when I was writing Restoration, when I tried to explain the concept of that story, it was like I could almost feel people like mentally freeze. Like, what? <laughs> like the first time I talked about it, it was utter crickets. I was like, I know it sounds weird, but... I think it'll be okay, but I had a really strong vision for it. So I, I, I felt really confident that I had, I had been, I'd worked through all the ripples of that story and that I had it sorted out. But when I would mention it, people would be kind of like, huh? I don't get it. And then when I started writing it on rough trade, people, people were like, Oh, I get it now. I get it. Um, there's a whole conversation in the chat going on about, um, about proposals, but Restoration was um, one of one of my um, ideas that, at least on paper, was one of the ones that I think people were less convinced about. Like, really? Um, and then 
I think in the execution, it people saw where I was going with it. So it, not always is it a case of because an idea sounds weird or because you can't articulate it well, does it mean that the idea is a problem? Um, but sometimes if you're having a hard, but that can also, on the other hand, be a clue that there is an issue. If you're having a really hard time articulating uh, what's going on with the story um, or explaining it in a way that doesn't just engender more and more and more questions from people, that could be a red flag. But like I said, not necessarily. It just... Sometimes an idea just spirals in a really awful way. You know what I remember most about rest- on Restoration? That one commenter who still wanted to be Harry Draco. Oh, I know. Like, motherfucker, they are brothers. Like, literally brothers. It's not even like like brothers. Actual brothers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm the wrong person to ask to write incest. Um... I mean, it could be that those of us who haven't paid close attention to the Harry Potter family trees might have ever accidentally written some incest, but it wasn't on purpose. Um, but I think my most, the ideas I've often had the hardest time explaining have all, all been in Harry Potter. But anyway, that's that's a whole tangent. Um, <laughs> I don't think I could have explained a Leo Moto to people very well. I think I tried at one point, and I think, that, you know, like the first person I tried to explain the Leomoto to, I think they just kind of glazed over like, I don't get it. Um, but I'm going to go back to the question. Um, where did I put the question? I lost it. Oh, okay. There it is. I like that the, one of the things Susan asked was sometimes, you know, you get an idea and you know that you're not the writer for it. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes you get an idea, and that's happened. We've we've talked on the podcast about it. It's like Kira and I will like we'll, we'll plot something, and we'll go. You could do this. You could do this. You could do this. I wouldn't personally. And when I say something like that, it usually when I say you could do this, I wouldn't personally. It usually means I'm not the writer for that idea. Um, for and there's a variety of reasons why you might not be the writer for an idea, even if it occurred to you. Just because it was a creative product of your brain doesn't mean that it necessarily is something that's going to fit your creative process. And I think that that is a vital part of creative maturity and maturing into yourself as a writer is recognizing which things that your brain throws up are viable for you as a writer and the way you like to write versus something that is just an idea. Um, cause we all have ideas that aren't, are, aren't, you know, cause we brainstorm people, lots of ideas going around and you go, yeah, that well, you could do this, you could do this. It'd be fun. It doesn't mean that it's something you would actually want to jump on and write. So I think that that's an important distinction is, um, is to know and to learn to recognize that's not an idea for you. Now, some people might have a hard time recognizing that's not an idea for me, but that also, I think, requires sometimes a little bit of um, growing into yourself as a writer and knowing your process is to be able to look at an idea and go, well, that's too character-driven or that's too plot-driven for me or... Or just, man, I wouldn't enjoy writing in that fandom. Or it's a it's a fun idea, but I just don't think I'd want to go there. Or, or, or whatever. It's to know yourself well enough as a writer. Um, there have been times when I've had an idea, and I followed the ripples through, and I came to a point where there was a very logical consequence to the changes that I made um, that I would not personally be able to write, but could not ignore. Because the ripple is so overt that 
even lampshading it would be difficult. Like, for instance, in reality, there is no single way Christopher Diaz would have survived that tsunami. He wouldn't have. Buck never would have found him after they were separated. He would not have had the physical strength. Even a boy who did not have cerebral palsy would have had a difficult time holding onto that pole. Because that tsunami would have hit them between three and 500 miles an hour. Buck's survival is circumspect. At best. Christopher's survival is fantasy. I mean, I would not be able to write it. Would be able to write what? That Christopher dying in the insomnia. I mean, it's a little. It is. It is the most logical consequence of what happened in that show. Yeah, um, I for a canon divergence, but I would not write it. I would never write Christopher dying. Um, I was so mad at the one story that I read. Actually, the funny thing is, I don't want to write, read any of the three of them dying. But I did pick up that one story that I thought was Eddie dying and Buck going to get Christopher, and it was the reverse. It was Christopher was dead, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, you bitch." <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not reading that. I'm willing to read my cinnamon roll being d- dying, but I am not willing to read my unicorn dying. I mean, I have, I have. There are a couple of where Christopher dies, and one was um, in the summary. It was Eddie telling Christopher he could go because his mom would be waiting on him, and I was like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you put that in the summary." I I cried over the summary of this story. There's no way I'm gonna fucking click on it. I was a hot mess. I had to go get tea. <laughs> it's just, it was horrible. Yeah, that is terrible. Um, I do have a really cute idea for the tsunami, which is that that sentence. <laughs> Makes no There's sense some... out of context, but it's yeah. cute. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to you have to understand the 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 fandom. If you don't understand the fandom, it's one of those things. It's like really, <laughs> it's cute as fuck. I know, but I'm gonna write it, and then you will see Frog, and you will know that it you're you'll be you will say Kira. You're right. That was cute as fuck. <laughs> right, Jillian? Is this the thing we were talking about the other night? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It is cute as fuck. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, so yeah, we, we all, so let's talk about, let's talk about a bad ripple how about, and, and how to manage it. Bad ripple. Okay. Um, cause one of the questions, um, one of the questions is, and with a bad ripple, you, this, this, this applies is how do you tell when the idea itself is a problem and you should push through and solve the issues versus just kind of cut your losses is the implication. Um, <clears throat> well, I guess it's, is the idea worth it to you? Because in fandom, the only value on your story from, well, for me personally, my only, the only value I place on my story is the investment to me worth it because that's the only value you're going to get out of your, um, out of your fan fiction legitimately. Is it worth it to you? Do you have the time to dedicate to fixing this problem and working through it? If it takes 150K, are you willing to do that work? And if you're not, that is perfectly legitimate. Because fan fiction is supposed to make you happy, not miserable. Unless you're a 911. <laughs> and sometimes it makes you miserable. <laughs> Terrible authors. You know, being polyphandomous is good for you. It is good for you. Look at that. Polyphandomous. Look at those beautiful men. Um, I mean, but honestly, how could they post that picture of those two and it not be a canon pairing? 
I know. Because he's obviously thirsty over there. Right? <laughs> um, so, Bad Ripple. Um, I've talked to this, about this before, but I had a, a... It was more like... It was almost like... Um, hmm. It was sort of something I hadn't decided what to do with. It, it was... A, a little bit I was a little bit too stuck in my own head in my plotting when I plotted the parts of emergence that I plotted because I I had an I had sort of a loose abstract for emergence when I sat down to write it. I wrote a bit and then I sat down and plotted the rest. But I had this loose piece that I hadn't dealt with um, in my plot. And I thought I'll deal with it when I get there, which is <laughs> that that strategy never ever works out for me um by the way when it comes to a plot point i'll work it out when i get there i can't think of a time that that's ever worked out for me that only works out for me with original character names um and only if i use a, a name generator <laughs> because otherwise they all end up with names that start with them um but when i when i conceived emergence it was supposed i conceived it as a parallel of the sentinel that instead of writing sentinels i was writing um dragons which the first time I said that, somebody was really shocked by that. I thought it was really, I think I even put it in my author notes. So I was really surprised people didn't, some people, not everybody got that it was a parallel of the Sentinel. Um, but in doing that, in getting, being a little bit too literal, a little too fixed on bringing in all of the Sentinel fanon into the story, I decided that I had this lingering issue of spirit guides. And here's the thing. That was a ripple. The spirit guide thing. Is I decided I would deal with it when I got there. That was, it was, I, no, that was a dumb idea to wait to deal with it till I got there. Because they That's don't. That's a huge element, dude. <laughs> I know. They don't, and the thing is, in this story, they don't really serve a function. So I was really stuck. So the thing is, I wrote, and the thing is, I wrote them in, not knowing what function they serve. Like they have, like it became this issue of like Tony has this strong feeling that they need to summon these spirit animals, and they've never had these dragon spirits before, and and like I remember, and the thing is, it, it, the further I pushed along in the story, because he had this very strong impulse that this had to be done, and it wasn't like they'd always had them. If they'd always had them and they served no real function, it wouldn't have been a big deal because it would have been a lot like you know spirit animals and sentinel fan and. But I made it be this big deal that he felt like they had to do this and they, nobody had ever had them before. So it's this injection of this major plot point. And I created a ripple for myself with having no... So I, I'm in my mind waiting for... I got to come up with a reason why he did that. So I was actually having an MRI and I will never forget this. And I'm not supposed to move. And I'm laying there in this fucking MRI tube and I, got, I figured out a reason. I figured it wasn't like... It wasn't like it was some like... Okay, it was a blinding flash of inspiration, but it wasn't like it was great and creative because it was more like I suddenly, suddenly at long last had a way to fill this hole. And so I made the technician in between, you know, rounds of the MRI make a note for me so I didn't forget because, you know, old lady brain. And, um, which is probably one of the weirder moments that poor man's ever had where I'm giving him plot notes about dragons. But anyway, so, um, the thing is, after I was finished and I got it posted, it occurred to me, I just didn't need it. <laughs> I just didn't need to do it at all. I had been so determined to mirror Sentinel Fanon that I created this giant problem for myself that didn't need to be there. And it continues to be a problem. 
Like if I were to actually go forward with writing more in emergence, I would need to go in and strip that out because it drives me crazy that that's in the story now. <laughs> it And see, it doesn't need to be there. It serves no real function. I gave it a function, but it's not a function that actually needs to exist because in, it, it may not be obvious to um, the to the reader, but Daniel's function in the triad and spirit dragons do the exact same fucking thing. <laughs> so redundancy. <laughs> um, especially since, yeah, it's because especially since they were doing a brain MRI, he probably thought, well, I wonder what they're trying to find in her. Um, <laughs> but I had this ripple, you know, and it is it was, unlikely that this is the first time that Jillian has become. You'll never be what you'll you'll never believe what happened at work. Story. That's probably <laughs> that's is, probably true. Not her first time. <laughs> no, no, because they never had the spirit animals until Tony until Tony summoned them. Mm. So, um, anyway, um. Tony, I introduced, I basically introduced this, like I said, if it had been a literal parallel that they'd always had them, always had the spirit animals, the spirit dragons, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But I created this ripple by having this plot pro point in that I put in that made it be this, this dangling thread of like, why is this important? I made it important. He had this big thing. It had to be done. And that they felt incomplete if it wasn't done. I made it be a big deal. And then I had no explanation for it. So I had to find an explanation for it, which actually wound up being redundant to my world building, but I'm just even with myself. Um, and, and then it wasn't until it was posted until it was posted and it was up <coughs> that I realized I didn't need it at all. It mm. took me that long to realize I didn't need it. Sometimes it will just hit you out of nowhere. Like, like that time I realized that there's no way that Harry Potter could have grown up in an abused home if Sentinels were known and were everywhere. I know. I'm... That happened in the middle of a podcast. Yeah. And how many, How you, I think you were two Harry Potter Sentinel stories in? At yes, that point. I was. You were, you were at, just finished your second one and all of a sudden we're talking about it on the podcast and all of a sudden you're, it's like your brain shorted out. Blue screen of death. Only about a third of you probably got that, which is sad. Um, I don't even think Windows does that anymore when your computer dies. I think it just gives you a big frowny face. <laughs> oh, Frog, I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, I guess my question is... I haven't gotten a big blue screen of death in probably a decade. I feel like Frog's op operating system is really antiquated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make a leap. It has a frowny face on it. Are you serious? That is hilarious. <laughs> it's a blue screen with a frowny face. Yeah, I, the I judgment is real. Face. Yeah. <laughs> wow, you auto rebooted. Wow, but you know, like sometimes you, it, it, and once you realize a ripple like that, like the one where Harry Potter couldn't have grown up in those circumstances if Sentinels were known and everywhere. Um, it's it's difficult to read stories. That's hilarious. It's difficult to read stories where authors cling to that principle or that founding part of their idea because a lot of Harry Potter writers are deeply invested in making Harry Potter's childhood as badly as po as, as bad as possible. Like, I mean, some of them make enough. it so bad there's no way he could have actually survived it. Yeah, 
I mean, it, canon is bad enough. Even the implications, if you follow some of the implications of canon, that's plenty bad. Um, honestly, worse than it should have been. I mean, Julie and I read it, like the first chapter of the Philosopher's Stone, and it is clear that Vernon actually physically abuses both his son and Harry. Yeah. So, um, you don't need to make it worse than it already is, y'all. Dislocated shoulders and punctured lungs, and I mean, you can, you know, Someone and there comes a point on Harry's actually Matt... for writing Harry starving and Harry Potter and the soulmate bond, except that's canon. His aunt didn't like to feed him, barely yeah. fed him. There is a, um, there comes a point at which if Harry's magic is healing that much damage, that his magic should just take him away. You know, I, I write that implication right there. Actually, is a, there actually is a story um, where Harry's magic does exactly that? He's little. And um, Harry um, is so injured that his magic, he apparates. Um, no, it takes him to Hogwarts. Um, takes him to Snape. And Snape doesn't know it's Harry. Uh, I think it's called Snape's Invisible Friend or something like that. Actually, Snape's Invisible Friend might be the sequel. It's a genfic. Um, and um, I've seen him taken by Merlin. I've seen him transported in the past to the Founder's era. Um, I've seen the one with Snape, but I didn't read it. Um, I've seen ones where he got rescued by, uh, the, uh, the bank. It needs saying, Margaret, because some people would not write that as a gen fix. So I'm just pointing it out. Um, right. Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it, I, I actually really support if Harry is being abused that badly as a child, they probably, it probably would have started if he was being, you know, late toddlerhood. That probably immediately once it started, his magic would have either called out to somebody or it would have popped him away. Um, yeah, I think Snape's Invisible Friend might be the sequel to the original. And the, 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 in in this in Snape's Invisible Friend, um, the house elves, uh, which drives Snape doesn't realize that's what happened is happening. Is the house elves teach Harry um, their magic? And how to, because Harry's afraid, terrified that when school starts in session, that they're going to take him away. And the house elves want him to feel safe. So they teach him how to be invisible. And so Snape is telling Dumbledore and Minerva and stuff about this kid that he's been taking care of. And they see no kid. <laughs> they Snape, as I recall, they think Snape has lost it. <laughs> okay, so they're like, um, they're we'd like, like you to visit Poppy. There's like, there's a child there. And the thing is, Harry doesn't, I, as I recall, it takes quite a while before Harry trusts anybody. And the thing is, Snape doesn't know it's Harry. Um, so he becomes deeply invested in Harry as a, as a child and before he realizes that it's Harry Potter. Um, I, I do question that one since it's like everybody, like the first thing that everybody says to Harry Potter when they see him, if they knew his mother, is that you have your mother's eyes. How, so how could he look at a toddler version of, of, of someone who looks a great deal like fucking James Potter with Lily Potter's eyes in the middle of his face and not think, not even question it? I don't know. Now, I do remember he had a head injury when Snape first got him, so he didn't see the scar. Um, oh, so that was the first in the series? Denial, yeah. I mean, I can see that. Yeah, okay. And it's later in the series that he accidentally cures lycanthropy. He, he Accidentally? Um, <laughs> he, well, he he does something. He he um, changes. Um, he um, um, he broke something in Snape's lab, and he replaces it with the ash from 
um, from Fox's burnings, which the um, the um, the house elves have been keeping, and they have this huge ton amount, a huge amount of it, and nobody knows, right? And he he replaces it with phoenix ash, and Snape thinks it's one ingredient; it's actually phoenix ash. And the next thing you know, like Remus is cured, <laughs> and he's like, "What did you do?" And he's like, "I don't know." <laughs> That's fun, though. I like that. It's like he's just accidentally just saving the world. <laughs> yeah, and then it turns out there's it was actually more complicated than just the replacement of the ingredient. There was another factor as well. Um, but anyway, it, it was it was a I haven't read the story in years. It was one of the it, I will say the abuse is rough, but it only is mentioned early in the first story, which is Snape's invisible friend. Um, but it was one of the first stories I read in the Harry Potter fandom. It may have literally even been the second story. The first story I read was um, one of the stories written by an Exiles author who had who had gone off to um, write in the fandom. Uh, so this this may have um, um, this may have been literally been the second story with Snape's Invisible Friend. Somebody recommended it to me, so um, and it was genfic because I had no I didn't know enough about Harry Potter to have an idea about ships or even really I I, I even only vaguely knew who the characters were at that point. So. Um, I have um, hazel eyes. My eyes shift from blue to dark green um, in the spectrum, depending on light and all that stuff. But a genuine green eye, I think that once that settles, it settles. But hazel is the one that kind of moves around. And, well, and blue can shift between gray and blue and depend. I mean, I yeah. was born with brown. I was born with brown eyes. I don't. I never had blue eyes. Not every baby is born with blue eyes. Um, and not even Asian babies. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not Asian. My eyes were born. I was born with brown eyes. Actually, my eyes were basically look. They looked black when I was born, and they're light brown now. <clears throat> well, actually, I've got I've got light brown eyes with a very thick band of gray around them, which is a little bit. Most of my grandmother's children were born with brown eyes, but my grandmother was um, half Cherokee, so. And she, I mean, like, all, like my mother is probably like one of two of her children that did not have brown eyes. And most of them were born with brown eyes. Yeah. I mean, some people um, with blue but eyes. But needless to say, by the time Harry Potter's a toddler, his eyes would have been green. Definitely. Definitely. But with, with, with a green-eyed baby, probably was born with blue eyes. Unless it's like a magical trait. And you can you know, kind of play on that. And if it's a magical trait, he might have been born with a messy head of black hair and bright green eyes. Yeah. That he's gotten traits from both of his parents. So you can play with these things, but when you play with stuff like that, you need to pay attention to it. Like that whole thing that magic is sentient. That's not canon. There is very little magical theory in Harry Potter. Um, but it, it also is not, not canon. Right. So you can play with it. But when you say that magic is sentient, that's a huge ripple. That's like that's huge because that implies that there's an intelligent force in magic where it could be either like something like lady magic or just an intelligent force that you do not um, expound on. But if magic is intelligent, it seems unlikely to me that magic would allow one of its children to be abused. And in a world where magic is sentient, I would assume that any kind of physical abuse would be very rare among, mag uh, among magicals. Because when your own magic will defend you, whether you want it to or not, I mean, that, that's how somebody gets snatched up and tossed across a room. Or bitch slapped. You never tell your name a story. 
How to get bitch slapped by magic in three easy steps. I mean, I'm just saying, if magic is sentient, if you make magic sentient and sapient, you got a whole new ball game. Like, how is that magic manifesting? Where is that magic coming from? Has it always been there? Has it matured? Um, is it a situation where the more magical people are, the more magic itself has advanced in the world? Is magic a function of genetics or is it a function of magic itself? Does magic choose who is magical and who is not? Because if magic chooses, then blood politics go completely out the window. I wouldn't choose that particularly because it would be difficult. There would be a lot of ripples if magic chooses. Like where there would be a mixture of families where it, it would be theoretically impossible for a family to all be magical in the magical world if magic chooses. And if magic chooses, I don't think that magic would be a big secret. I think if magic was choosing, words like squib and muggle wouldn't exist. On, on, but but that implies that people understand what's going on. I mean, it depends um, on how long magic's been around, right? Right, but you can get away with a certain amount by the fact that people um, haven't correctly interpreted magic's intent and if magic is kind of sitting back and watching as opposed to interfering directly um for the most part then people can get it really wrong like, it would depend really on how you how you structure it how the sapience is structured how the sentience is structured um like i said it, that's a lot of world building that's an, an astronomical amount of world building and you have to decide like i have this this kind of steampunk idea where um, Hermione gets thrown through a dimensional node by Jenny Weasley because, of course, <laughs> because she's jealous of, of 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 Hermione because of her job. Anyway, it's it's not about Harry because Harry doesn't exist in her world. Well, he was killed um, as a baby, um, and so she ends up in another world. And in that world, there are no non magicals because when a plague happened. It spread all over the world. It was a pandemic. And the Magicals responded by taking anybody that, because they were immune. And the Magicals responded to this worldwide plague by taking anybody that had the, you know, anybody who wasn't magical got taken to a lay lake and bathed in magic to cure them. Well, it did cure the plague, but it also gave them magic. So by the time they were done, there were no muggles left. This happened generations before Hermione landed in this world. So when she lands in this world, she's in an entirely magical world. And she asked Piper, well, what happens if somebody's born without magic? And Piper looks at her, she said, well, we just take them to the lake and dip them in. <laughs> just throw them in the lake. Everybody gets magic. <laughs> it's a magic baptism. Everybody gets magic. You get magic and you get magic. And so she's gone from a world where she's hated because of her blood status. Um, to a world where everybody is magical and it's steampunk uh it's a steampunk world and so um it's on my back burner but um anyways yeah so because that happened so long ago that she's on a world that's never had a world war and she's on a world where she probably doesn't exist there there isn't a version of her that exists which is to her benefit obviously um and so you know 
part of that story will be exploring the changes that took place because by the time the magical started interfering, there weren't a lot of people left. And even five, six hundred years later, the world population isn't as big as it should be. Isn't as big as it was on her world. There just aren't that many people left. So it's a very different world. It's a world powered by magic. Uh, it's a world where they've never left Earth. They've never gone to the moon. Which is how, which is how um, you get the They don't have cars. Thing. They don't have cell phones. Right. So it's all steampunk. And so, yeah. So it's like, it's an entirely different world. Anyways, so that's an idea. But there's a lot of world building to do in that idea, which is which is why it's currently sitting in my not right now works in progress folder. <laughs> Because I love the idea, but I don't have the time or energy to invest in it. And that is a multi-book yeah. investment. And sometimes, you, and sometimes also, you may like an idea, another idea more than than that one. And you go, okay, well, I've got two right. ideas that are going to require a lot of investment worldwide. Um, and also, sometimes when you've got something that's got complicated world building, you have to be careful about unpicking your world building. Um and this is one of the things that you, I think you kind of have to resist is like, if you get your world building locked down, which is one of the reasons why I typically t tend to do the world building first. Um, even if I've got a kind of a vague idea, I'll, I'll build a world that suits my idea and then plot the story. And if something isn't going to line up with my world building, I tend to change the store, the, the idea, not the world, because it can be difficult to, if you start unpicking a world building you put together that you feel is pretty tight, when you start unpicking it, um, unless you've really got time to comb back over your world building and kind of cross check the fuck out of it, you run the risk that you've given yourself a plot hole. And that's happened to me in the past, which is why I'm careful to not do it. So like with my current rough trade project, I'd gotten kind of an idea late in the game after I'd already plotted and done the world building that would have required me to change my world building. And I could have, and I don't think it would have had big ramifications to the world building. Um, but I just, it was so late in the game that I didn't want to take that risk that I was going to expose myself to a plot hole. So I just didn't, I just put that idea aside. And I think that's one of the things, it's an important part of writerly discipline is you can't get distracted by every shiny thing. You got to, you got, you can't do the squirrel thing about everything because if you want to be able to execute your idea, the ooh shiny thing, it has to, you got to stop sometimes. Um, and I see sometimes I see authors putting things in that I'm like, what function does this serve? Or like, I'll, somebody, I'll talk to them about an idea ahead of time. And then like when they actually get to executing, there's all of this stuff that has nothing to do with what we talked about. And it actually is going to create a plot hole for them later. I'm like, oh boy, if they're going to go with the idea that we, if I th they're going where I think they're going, they've now given themselves a plot hole because they picked up this shiny thing and they put it in. Um, no, I don't think so. Just because a, a canon has a lot of flaws in it doesn't mean that your story shouldn't make, and the story itself shouldn't have internal consistency. Your story shouldn't be a hot mess just because the canon's a hot mess. That's like saying any Teen Wolf story should be a hot mess. Um, Which, you know. The nice thing is that because yeah. they're a hot mess, you can create your own internally consistent thing and not worry about theirs. But that's a little bit different than just, you know, create a hot mess because the original's a hot mess. Um, but, um, Teen Wolf, the fandom where 
80-ish percent of the fandom want to ask Peter why he why? didn't kill Scott. <laughs> why did you bite him? I mean... <laughs> and, and Peter's like, I know! <laughs> I, I made a mistake! <laughs> Mistakes why, were dude, made! Why? I deeply regret it. I mean, um, not kill him, I guess, because that would, that would traumatize Styles, but he didn't have to bite him either. <laughs> Just, just go we back in time. all done without werewolf Jesus. Just go back in time and don't bite that guy. Bite anybody else. Um, or okay, maul him a little. Uh, although if he mauled him a little, Styles probably wouldn't have forgiven him. It's best just to not let it happen. Um, right. So it's. A, I think one of the, it is. It is a very important part of when you're working on an idea and you're working on something is to stay, stay to plan. And and when you add something in. Like your pants a penguin, make sure it's actually serving a function that you need because you're going to have to deal with the ripples of your penguin. We will use this as an example for all eternity because Kira rarely pants in big things. Um, pants in big things. Boy, that sounds weird. Um, Not as weird it, as some of the things you could have said. It is, yes, true. She rarely pants in a, but it was needed. And she made note when she did it of the things she got to go back in and fix in her narrative to make the penguin work um also because it was something that it wasn't something that was going to derail her world building um it's really it's really critical i think when you make a plot choice like that that it's it's not that it, it's like a plot point or it's a character choice or whatever that it's not something that is like adding something to your world building that might not be completely considered and then you like okay you just broke the entire universe that you created um, right I did have to, I mean, to justify the appearance of a fairy penguin on Atlantis, I did have to, you know, kind of build in some some things about Theseus that were not part of my original headcanon for him. Um, in the fact that he did actually kidnap a colony of penguins when he left Earth because he thought they were really helpful. <laughs> and keeping his understructure clean. <laughs> And then in order to keep them alive, he, he gradually made changes to them over the course of millions of years. Of course, the implication is, is that, you know, there were actually fairy penguins on Earth when he was on Earth, which, you know, hand wave. <laughs> yeah, you got a hand wave at some point. Because <laughs> it's probably not true. Um, but, you know, you have to make careful decisions if you've plotted or... Um, if you've written, done world building, that if, especially if you're going to change your world building, you're going to add an element to your world building, is you have to be really careful that it doesn't give you a, a consistency issue in your world building. Because if you have a consistency issue in your world building, you could wind up with a giant plot hole. And sometimes that is where you get to when you feel like power, when you, you know, the question about, you know, should you power through or should you just put it down? Sometimes... The right answer is to put it down and think about it. Sometimes you do have to be ruthless with yourself. Yeah. Um, there have been times where I thought to myself, okay, this, this idea is really interesting, but I don't think I can write it. And acknowledging that something is beyond your, um, your skill level is perfectly okay. Own that. Be comfortable with that. Um, I would have a really difficult time writing like hardcore reality-based science fiction. Yeah, it would feel like a it would feel like a job, not a 
It feels like, feel like a school assignment, honestly. All I mean, I don't want to have to go take a, a, a degree in physics to write a, a novel. Um, so, so there are some things that I would not be able to write. I don't think I would be terribly comfortable in hardcore high fantasy. I think the, the Hobbit level is good for me. I don't necessarily want to dig deep into Lord of the Rings. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is my can, can you guys not hear me? Okay. No, I can hear you. Can you hear me, Kira? Yeah, I can. Okay. So, I mean, because like I used to read like a lot of high, like a really high fantasy. Um, and in some, in, in some respects, Lord of the Rings is not necessarily the, the top of the ladder on high fantasy. Um, there are a lot of really complicated, um, series out there high fantasy series uh that would be very difficult for me to write in i don't think i could write in dragon riders of pern i don't know enough about it really and i'm not particularly invested in learning um and the thing about the thing about i don't have a problem with conceptually about um about conceptually about high fantasy but most high fantasy fandoms don't interest me enough um, not the fandom, um, the the original source material. Uh, I tend I mean, to find also high the fandom. Yeah, I tend to find um, a lot of high fantasy tedious. Um, read, uh, just take it down a notch for me, please. <laughs> I like low fantasy. <laughs> I mean, I might be able to write a fantasy project myself in my with my own world building and my own ideas about how things would go, but I don't know that I would want to write in a fantasy like Narnia. Or Lord of the Rings, or um, Pern, or I mean, they're like any of the uh, uh, what's his name? What's his name? Pern's more science fiction, right? Um, but it's also fantasy. I mean, it's not just science fiction. I, I don't want to go near a g- Game of Thrones because it, it looks well. There's a reason why science fiction and fantasy is often put together because it blends. Um, but I was thinking about that, that one, that one dude that, um, I can't, I can't remember his name. He's written dozens of books. Fantasy writer. Big deal. Shannara? Terry Brooks? The Shannara series? No. But the Shannara series by Terry Brooks? Okay. Because that's what comes to mind when I think of like, um, 90s high fantasy, um, is, or are you thinking of Terry Brooks? No, he's literally like in his 90s. (laughs) His age. Oh, he's in his 90s. Yeah. Um, I just can't remember his name. What if if someone says it in the chat room, it it, um, it will pop for me. But no one's done it so far. Um, yeah, uh, Pier- Pier- Piers, Piers, Piers Anthony. Oh, Piers Anthony. Thank you. Um, I couldn't, I, I couldn't write any of that stuff. I mean, I it's beyond me. Yeah, I think of when I think of high fantasy, I tend to think I do tend to think of Lord of the Rings. I think of not so much The Hobbit. I agree. I think Hobbit is pretty accessible. Um, I do think of Lord of the Rings. I think of um, Terry Brooks. I think of um, Terry Pratchett. Um, um, not Terry Brooks. Not Terry Pratchett. Um, um, no, Terry Pratchett. Yeah, that's his name. We got two Terrys. Um, that, that's who. Because I, I mean, Discworld comes to mind when I think of um, when I think of. Um, uh, yeah, Discworld definitely comes to mind when I think of high fantasy, and um, yeah, Pratchett is Discworld, and Terry Brooks is Shannara series, and um, and uh, somebody mentioned Valdemar. Um, I agree that that comes to mind with. Uh, but some of the big sci-fi writers would also kind of throw me off, like um, 
<laughs> it just yeah, tore right out of my party. brain. Heinlein. Oh, Heinlein. I love oh, Heinlein. Yeah. Um, but I could not write that. I uh, Isaac Asimov. My husband loves that. I could not in a million years. Um, I, so yeah, there. You know, it's okay to accept your limits. It's also okay okay to push and explore your limits. So you real. So you really know where you're comfortable and where you're not comfortable. Yeah, and and also, I mean, and it's okay if you're not comfortable. Just because you enjoy reading in a fandom doesn't mean that you're going to enjoy writing in a fandom. And if and that could be the problem that somebody's having with an idea, right? So like when it comes to the question of should I push through with this idea? Well, is the issue that there's a problem with the idea or is the issue that you're having a hard time pushing through because you're just not enjoying writing in that fandom or um, and that's that's a maybe a different question is how to identify the source of the problem. But if you've identified the source of the problem as, you know, there's a lot of obstacles in the plot that you have to overcome. Um, one option is to um, just to set it aside and give yourself some time to think. I wish I had done that with emergence. I I wish I had set it aside and given myself some time to think about the problem. But I was newly back into writing fan fiction and I was getting a lot of pressure. Um, to get that story finished and posted. And I was succumbing to that pressure. And instead of setting it aside and giving myself time to figure things out, um, um, instead of giving myself time to figure things out, I just kept pushing through. I just powered through and I came up with a solution and I put the story up and inadvertently, you know, hampered myself from being able to continue with the series because I don't like the solution I came up with. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is where I point out to you that it's your shit and you could uh, rewrite it and then put up a new version of it and announce it and move on and say, fuck you if you don't like it. And I, and that's something I, if I want to continue, I would, I would have to go that route. The thing is, is that you also it's not like a matter anymore either. It's not even that. Um, it's so much as because in, in that, it, while it's, I'm not, while I'm not enamored of the pairing um, in that particular context, it, the relationship wasn't uh, because of the whole dragon thing and it being a completely different world, the relationship had not become toxic like it did in canon. Um, but the issue is actually just how big it is. I mean, it is a massive editing undertaking. But also to, to, to pull apart where you can write fan fiction of your own fan fiction. <laughs> That's true. You can write an alternate universe of your fan fiction and say, this is not connected to Emergence, but I did use some of the Emergence world building. Here you go. Here's Eddie. He's a dragon. <laughs> I definitely need to do um, yeah. That'd be fun. <laughs> dragon firefighters. How would that work? <laughs> yeah, dragon Actually, I think that would probably be really good because they would be They're immune, to, immune to fire right. for starters. It's counter that you, you would the dragons wouldn't fight fire necessarily, but they would be immune to fire, so that would be helpful in that regard. Um, but I think we get sometimes we get very rigid ideas in our mind, and sometimes the solution to our problem and all these obstacles and barriers we have is just really simple, and that is where sometimes getting out of your own head can be very beneficial. It's sort of like um, with React, I, and I've talked about this on another podcast. I was so stuck in my head about the pairing I had plotted for that story. And the issue wasn't that the story was incomplete the way it was. The issue was I was in my own way because of my plot. Um, and I couldn't figure out how to make my plot work. And I got frustrated. 
And so I put it aside, which is one of the options. One of them is power through and write it anyway, even though it's got problems, which is what I did with emergence and regret it later. And the other option is to set it aside. Well, in React, what I did was set it aside for like two years. And then Evil Author Day comes along and I'm looking for something to post and I'm going through stuff of mine that's relatively substantive. There's, there's, you know, and it's the thing that was in the best shape and I'm rereading it. And I remembered what my issue was, which was that I had plotted a pairing that didn't work. And um, I get, I read the story and I go, why the fuck did I need that pairing? I couldn't figure it out. I was so in my own way that I couldn't even imagine when I reread it, I was just mystified at my past self because I was like, why couldn't you see, Jillian, that all you had to do was just not write the pairing? It's not there. You, it, there's like no chemistry. There's, it's not like I was building. Every, every time I had the option to write chemistry, I didn't. Um, it was like I was deliberately not, it was like I was deliberately not writing that pairing and then upset because my plot wasn't working out. And all I had to do was get out of my own way and change the pairing. So, but it, the thing is, I conceivably could have come to that conclusion a few other ways. I didn't need to set it aside for two years, but I was frustrated in thinking the idea had fallen apart. So I set it aside. I could have asked for an alpha reader to give me some perspective because that's where sometimes alpha alpha perspective helps is, is this the hot mess I think it is? And then the alpha would go, well, why does the pairing have to be Chris Argent? Why does it have to be that? Um, and I would have gone, oh, you're right. It doesn't have to be that. Duh. Um, or you know, give yourself, get less frustrated and don't, don't require a two year hiatus from it. Give yourself a month or two. There are other options. So that's, those are examples of where I went the two extreme directions. Well, one is pushing through and making honestly a bad choice. And the other was to set, you know, I got frustrated and put it aside. The third option would be to just set it aside deliberately, come back to it later, or get an outside perspective to say, can you give me some, and sometimes simplification I'd say more often than not, when I'm in my own way, simplification is the answer. There's a very straightforward path to the solution. Um, Here's the, someone said something in the chat room that I want to talk about a little bit. Um, they said that Chris Argent is hot. That's not true. The actor who plays Chris Argent is hot. Chris Argent is an unethical piece of shit, which makes him really deeply unattractive. I mean, they did go through a whole redemption arc for him. Um, you need a big one. It was, yeah, they did go through, and they did, the thing is, they pivoted on his character, obviously. Canon pivoted on his character because fandoms, um, fandomly liked him. But early season... Because the actor is hot. Right. Early, <laughs> early season two, the canon, the character in canon was a mess. He was a mess. I mean, he didn't was, he facilitate the torture of teenagers? He facilitated the torture of the school principal, um, he facilitated the death of, well, yeah, 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 yeah. So he's he's terrible, and you know, I, when I was younger, I would could look at characters um, played by really attractive people and kind of it, it it was very difficult for me. Like one of the biggest stumbling blocks I had in un, in, in writing Unleash Your Demons was the character of Loki. And the way that I dealt with him was to allow him his canon actions in Thor because he was an asshole, but he really didn't do anything that he wasn't allowed to do. And then I made his actions in Avengers because he was under the same control that Clint Barton was. 
under. And there's actually an implication in canon that, that that's actually true because of his eye color during the movie. Um, right. There is an implication that he is being it's, controlled by the Mind Stone the same way that Clint Martin was. It's not just an implication. They confirmed that. Yeah, the 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 producers so, but of the Avengers confirmed that he was under the influence of Thanos. Under control. The, yeah, he was being controlled so by Thanos. I could not have written him as Tony's love interest if I had continued to have that party line at the time that he was a mass murderer. I couldn't have done it. Now, a lot of people in fandom across the board will overlook the terrible bad acts of characters because the because the actors themselves are attractive. I think a lot of Scott fans are more enamored with the actor than they are of the character. And I'm sure that's actually the whole thing with the Ron Weasley defense squad. They're more attracted to that ginger actor <laughs> than they are the the terrible fucked up character that he plays. Because Ron's an asshole. But it's worth pointing out, there's a difference between uh, uh, somebody who's, unless they're doing something criminal, there's somebody, it's a difference between somebody who's an asshole who's a teenager or a kid, and somebody mm. who is a grown-ass man who's an asshole, and who's doing, who's doing illegal, and he's torturing and hurting people. There, There is a difference. There's a difference. Um, and there's also a difference between being a bad friend <laughs> and being a villain. Right. And Scott is a very bad friend. He's 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 pussy blind. Um <laughs> I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> I mean it's a hundred percent accurate, but <laughs> you seemed offended to even say it. <laughs> I am offended to say it. It, it it I mean they wrote him that way in canon though, right? Is he could not see past and the thing, it offends me because at least when we first get to know Allison, there was a lot good about her, more than just her looks. And it was like Scott was just fixated on her pants. It, it just, it 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 bothers me. It bothers me. Um, so, and then Allison became problematic too. So, but it's worth. It just is worth pointing out that. People get really like, you know, let's find a thousand ways to kill Scott. And if you do you, Boof. That's what you want to do. But he's still 16. So if he's, at least in season two, which is when most of the fic I read, some of the season three, he's, in season three, he's maybe maybe 17. Um, it's just worth mentioning that there's a little bit of a difference between, you know, a pious, morally superior Scott being, doing idiot things that honestly the adults are letting him get away with. And what Chris Argent does. There is just a difference. I'm sorry, there's there's a difference. Um and that is and honestly, he's he's give a 16-year-old boy a little bit of power, and a lot of them are gonna act like Scott. So the fact is that an, the adults all let him get away with that shit. Chris Argent let him get away. And when it comes to Chris Argent, it's not only my my issues with it, and the thing is, I get it, they did kind of retcon his character in season three. They kind of tried to walk back and they tried to make him, I'm gonna do better. Okay, so you can kind of hand wave away some of the stuff he did. But if you're looking at his actions in season two, which is when I wrote React, which was a canon diversion at the end of season two, he had tortured a school principal so his father could get a job. He had been shooting teenagers for no other reason than become because they were werewolves. So he had helped execute a werewolf for no, who had done nothing. Um, he's probably helped to execute a lot of werewolves. So he's, even if he, he's on some level, even if he claims to follow a code, he's at least xenophobic 
he's at least internalized that to some degree. Um, and he helped facilitate his own wife's suicide, his wife whom he claimed to love because she was a werewolf. He was so bought in to how awful that is that he helped kill her. Yeah, I have problems with him as a character. He and had, then he, let then let his daughter believe that it was somebody else's fault, right? Uh, Der Derek's fault. And he enabled his daughter, his minor daughter. He told her she was in charge and she could call the shots on going and shooting up a police station. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I have issues. So, And you were right to assume that your character would want nothing to do with him. Right. Romantically. And so I'm, I, I had, I, and the thing is when I plotted, when I kind of like, I plotted the story and not really thought much about the romance life. I'm like, oh, Jared Bourne's thought I'll put him together with Tony. Mm. And then I start writing. I go, no, no, Tony's not going to have anything to do with this guy at this stage in canon. And the more I tried to write it, the harder I hit a wall on it. And I really frustrated myself. And the thing is, I could have pushed through and tried to force that pairing, but I would have been deeply unhappy with it. So in that case, I chose to put it aside and think the story was shit and I was never going to go anywhere with it because I couldn't make my plot happen and I was mad at myself and then I reread it and I go, there's no hints of that pairing in the story. So why do I, why can't this part of it just be Jen and then figure out another pairing later? And then he had his first conversation with John Winchester and I went, well, okay. <laughs> and don't get wrapped around the axe by the John Winchester thing. It's an AU. I'm just borrowing the Winchesters as a hunting family, an ethical hunting family. It has nothing to do with supernatural canon. The last time I mentioned John Winchester, I mean, people got really bent. Um, but um, I think one of the skills that you can really, really invest yourself as a writer is to take characters out of their canon circumstances and put them in new ones and see what you can do with it and explore that. Because the character of John Winchester, who is not involved in the supernatural, but is, well, who's not involved in supernatural canon, he's not a demon hunter. And um, he's overhearing Teen Wolf. He is part of a hunter family with a generations long tradition um his circumstances are vastly different he could have three or four children yes he, he actually he actually could be does. divorced from his wife um instead of and his they, wife being killed and they are and in the way it's plotted is they did they are divorced they got married they had an arranged marriage um because apparently I have it, it's not uncommon in hunter families to have arranged marriages. Um, and that John put a stop to that after his um, arranged marriage. When, once he took the reins of the family, he was like, no more. We're not doing any of this anymore. Um, but she's a lesbian, so they got divorced. But they they continued to live together on their ranch um, and had additional kids after um, Sam and Dean. So they had additional children. Because sperm uh, donation is a thing. Right. Um, so that they could, you know, raise other children. And, you know, he has close ties to the, this all, this all comes out in the second book, but they have close ties to the various werewolf packs. And it's supposed to be how a hunter family is supposed to be, which is more like supernatural police force as opposed to supernatural boogeymen. Um, if you don't want a and, dick, a turkey baster is fine. Right. <laughs> And I get that in Supernatural, the show, John Winchester's a Nightmare. I, I watched enough of Supernatural, the show, to get that. But um, that actor seems to enjoy playing an asshole. Yeah. Um, but but when I really enjoyed him in Rampage, he's he's hilarious in Rampage. He's hilarious in Rampage. Um, 
But when you, um, and you can choose to kind of work with Chris Argent's character and maybe hand wave away some of the stuff in season two. I mean, they definitely did some stuff with him in season three and three A and three B that um, was clear. They're taking him on a redemption arc. He's going to take the family in a different direction and blah, 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 which I think work was interesting plot point. I just wish that his background wasn't so egregious because it, there's, it, there's a redemption arc. And then there's like, because in, in a little bit of a way to reference back to nine one one, um, like Bobby kind of has like some subtle little redemption arc a few times and, and, characters are flawed and you want to see that you want to see that they make mistakes and that they learn from them and they move on that's not the quite the same thing as being involved in mass murder but you know if you kind of like retcon his history a little bit and you take some of that stuff out and um change things up I, he, he's he's workable as a character because he's very i find the character in season three three a to be i've seen a couple episodes in three a and three b where i think he's very appealing much more so than he was in season two where i kind of wanted to spork him to death i mean if you want to take the character of chris argent um and give him a different background what i would do is have him move to beacon hills as a single father he when his daughter was born he and his wife did not agree about um the hunting um family issues and all that and he's like you know what you can keep it you can keep the name. You can keep the family. You can keep the resources. I want our kid. And I'm going to fuck off. And you don't come near me. And I don't come near you. And it'll be great. They'll be fine. And he takes his kid and he leaves. And eventually he comes to Beacon Hills. You can give him any kind of profession that you want to. He's a lawyer. He's an accountant. He's a psychologist. Because they all need therapy. Um, <laughs> just He's a college professor. Apparently there's a college in that town. Or university or whatever. I mean, whatever. Just just do. Just, and then you've created a character who is removed from the hunting family. Um, but d does have ties. So if you want to bring drama in, maybe his ex-wife gets killed. And his father comes to Beacon Hills because he needs a matriarch. And Allison is right for the picking. So, you know, if you, if you want to work with a character like that, work with a character like that. But, you know restructuring their background is a way to make them less problematic. Like have Allison be Chris Argent's redemption. Like, like just literally the birth of her. That he doesn't want that legacy for his child. Just a thought. I don't actually know about the Canada, you know, to really write something like that, but that's, you know, that's the way you deal with a problematic character like Chris Argent or John Winchester. You look at the actions of John Winchester in Supernatural. And take them away and get different circumstances. And there will be some people who will not be able to get past it because they can't get past the character in canon. They hate the character in canon and they don't want anything to do with the canon character in um, in a fandom. And that's fine. They don't have to look at what you, the character work you've done and appreciate it. You're not trying to please everyone. You're just trying to please yourself. And if you want to redeem Chris Sargent or you want to redeem John Winchester, it, it's not even a redemption if you're putting them in a completely different world. But if you want to completely change their circumstances so that they're a character you can work with, because canon Chris Sargent's difficult for me, um, especially in a, in a main romantic pairing, I can kind of have him be a side character with his canon backstory that's an ally of the pack, but not somebody I would put in, in front and center. Because 
not without reworking his his backstory. Um, you're not going to make everybody happy, and that's that's fine. There are people who loathe Peter. Got, um, I think it's two or three weeks ago. Um, wrote me about the dark road about that they really enjoyed dot but they didn't understand why i invested all that effort into writing a story about peter because peter was such a dick and canon and blah 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 blah. it was just like this they really hated peter and they could understand why peter was the focus of the story it was like yeah whatever um the beautiful thing about fandom and fan fiction is if you can't find something you want to read write it and if you can't write it shut the fuck up is that rude well or can you no, we'll keep looking, right? The thing is, if you're not liking what you're reading, if you hate Peter, also shut the fuck up. But just move on. Just move on. I mean, I don't know why the whole, the motivation, Dot's whole motivation in The Dark Road was her love for Peter. The story has no teeth if I take Peter out of it. <laughs> Who am I supposed to pin that on then? Um, so their argument just it was like they just were like i it, it almost was like reluctant enjoyment like oh i enjoyed this but i really didn't want to enjoy it because i hate peter it was like what they probably but you didn't need to share that with me was for dot to be focused on derek oh, on protecting derek on keeping derek safe from his sister on making sure derek's a good alpha derek's a child <laughs> <laughs> at that stage in canon but he was 15 i mean I'm yeah saying, I, 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 but, I see your point but yeah that, that that's kind of what i see happen with canon if if they don't like scott they're deeply invested in Derek being all that he can be which you know i appreciate i i, I like that too um but your story wasn't about that no. I mean, they're, she's lucky you even mentioned Derek at all again after he went off, after he got fucked off to New York, Jillian. <laughs> well, I was, it was like going to be, I, it was in the plot for the sequel, but then I'm like, what if I'm not ever in the mood to write that sequel? I do feel like I should close the loop on that. And so I, I sat down, I, I'd already, the funny thing is I had, I had asked my sister if she wanted to read. She wanted to read the story. So I, I sent it to her. So I think it's the first piece of fan fiction of mine she's ever read. And she doesn't know anything about Team Wolf. So she could read it like original fiction, right? So I sent it to her. And then I said, have you started reading that yet? And she said, no. I said, I think there's one scene I should add. And so I went and wrote, wrote the scene, that little scene where where Derek contacts Dot. And and then later she read, she goes, what scene did you add? And I said, where Derek comes, where Derek gets in touch. And, and she's like, oh, you weren't going to resolve that. And she was just so upset with me. She was it's like, but I did resolve it. But the version you read, it was resolved. She was, but you weren't going, going to. to. I, was like, I am, I grief. am team your sister. <laughs> she's still bitter about it. She's still like, I can't believe you for what's like, I can't believe you weren't going to resolve that. Plot baby Derek, Derek in New York like, with that crazy bitch. Because <laughs> um, I mean, when I'm deciding how many threads I'm going to leave hanging for a sequel, I have to decide, you know, anything major that's going to get me harassed for the next 50 years is that right? something that I want to leave, leave hanging. But sometimes you um, think that you've tied up all your little points that people will get wrapped around the axle about and then you have 50 emails in three years wanting to know what harry's gonna do about the house elves and you're like wait what why do you care or care? you spend a you spend a decade getting emails wanting to know them wanting to know what john's gonna ask vala to steal i don't know i didn't put that much thought into it um 
we had some ideas. We we threw around some ideas. I have some notes in my file. Um, but when I wrote it, didn't have a damn clue. Not a clue. It was a throwaway line that came back to bite me in the ass. And you just never know what a reader is going to latch on to. So what I'm saying in that is like, don't get completely wrapped up in tying up all your points if you want to leave room for a sequel. Um, because there's always going to be one little thing that you think is in, um, inconsequential. Winky one. That's actually in the finished product. Um, yeah. But I'll tell you a secret. Winky was always going to win. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is sort of horrifying because honestly, the the Death Eaters Dobby went after got a much better end. <laughs> right, at least it was quick. <laughs> I'd much rather be dropped in a live active volcano than fed to a nundu. Thank you. <laughs> that 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 is absolutely true. Dark that Dobby did treat it like a competition, and Wiki treated it like a job. But it's a job she'd been doing for decades. If that implication wasn't clear. <laughs> <laughs> she already had a sack dedicated to that job. <laughs> she knew their feeding schedules. She knew which Nundus would like live prey versus dead prey. <laughs> dead food. So yeah, but, but Winky was always going to win that. A Nundu is a feline magical creature that uh, expels poison. Um an airborne poison, um, and one can like go into a village, um, like pestilence, basically, um, and just and breathe in the air and the kill and kill them all, and then eat at their leisure. Yeah, so basically like a komodo dragon, but airborne. But they're also really big, and it takes a the komodo lot dragons. Of, um... They bite you. Yeah. Komodo dragons, when they bite you, you eventually will, you know, if you don't get treatment, you will die from um, sepsis. So, but the Nundu, it takes dozens of wizards to contain one. Dozens. Like, less than it would take a dragon. So, but yeah. But they but they, but they are a canon creature. It really it's depends. Kind of comment that. Yeah. Um, um, sometimes y'all's minds go really dark places. Quick. Quick. Uh, um, so, um, let me go back to the question. Back to the map. Richard Jenny. <laughs> Did you ever see Platypus Man? Did you ever see that stand-up routine? A long time he ago. He talks about, um, he talks about the weatherman. He always talks about, let's go to the map. He goes, fuck you. Let's go to the window. <laughs> but, um, I'm at 22K on my story, actually. I don't know how much I've got posted, but I'm at 22K on the, um, on the writing. I'm at, I think I'm at 42. I've posted 39, which I only anticipated posting 30. So, you know, I think well, it's going to be I'm 60. looking at about 50K. Yeah. I think mine's going to be 60 just because the episodes are all double what I expected. Um, I actually did know it was going to be a little over 30K, but I was I was thinking 40-ish, really, honestly. And then when I started doing it, I was like, no. I'll be lucky if it's 50. But not bad for 10 days, 9 days. I, I haven't written today. I, in fact, I didn't write yesterday either because um, while I didn't get any super symptoms, um, I do feel like super exhausted. And as a result, it's hard to concentrate. It's kind of like that 
when you've been up for a couple of days, people who have insomnia will get this. It's hard to make your brain stay on one thing. So I know this podcast is all over the place and I'm sorry. Um, it's just really hard to concentrate. That's where I am right now because of the vaccine. But I would rather have this than the panorama. So I'm good. Yeah. I can um, write short thick, Louise. <laughs> I'm just going to start giving her L names to one sticks. <laughs> Okay, so so Louise, Luann, Luann, Luann. I like I like Luann because it's got you know it, it, you can you can get a good Southern going with Luann. Listen, Luann, Luann. Okay, yeah, Luann. So I can write short. It's just um, I plotted a novella. I'm gonna get a novel. Um, but the thing about Harry Potter is that it's difficult to write short and when you're writing harry potter you can only if, if you get over 10k you're screwed any estimation you've got after you hit 10k is completely gone i mean because and god help you if you have, if you have to have a court scene and i've got one coming up well yeah i've i've got one coming up um my length is all in world building i could definitely have done a 30k in a procedural without a problem but right but there are some there are some fandoms where it's difficult to write short. Um, the Hobbit, Harry Potter. Like once you once you go past the the constraints, once you go past those constraints and you're putting in additional plot points, it's like it just blows up. Um, yeah, but I think she repeated most of what she said, so it'll be easy to edit. Um, it's yeah, I mean, it's like you get like. Okay, I have this little idea, but like sometimes, like it, you have your little idea, and if you write one more sentence, it's no longer a little idea. Like that time I wrote that Hobbit story where Bilbo and Thorin were in the um in the bathtub at the end. If I had written one more saint, one more sentence, it would have been a hundred k of Bilbo Baggins being the consort under the mountain, <laughs> right? Or that <laughs> hell out of Pearl, where you um, you're like if I write one more sentence. This is a multi-novella series. <laughs> right? That's actually one of my favorite titles ever. I love that. And I'm sure that you probably get questions for this. What's the title of me? Uh, the Hunt for Red October, baby. Fucking Pat Hanini. This is some Pavarotti shit. Not Pavarotti. Paganini. Whatever. Pavarotti. What the hell out at Pearl? Pagan Paganini. Is a composer. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, but that was like we were doing those one sentence prompts, and so we were so we had this constraint, um, and we were putting on ourselves for those prompts because it was more like just we were just testing things out. So it was like, ugh, you know, ugh. Uh, the thing and about the, I'm a the firm believer prompt. in discipline. Yeah. Well, we gave ourselves a limit of about 5K. Try not to go much over 5K. So we gave ourselves an upper limit. And in some of those cases, we were way under that limit, like way under. But it's because if we'd gone more, we were at, we both hit that point. And for both of us hit it in our, in our Hobbit fix. And I think we were both under 3K in our Hobbit fix. Um, where if we had added any more, we'd have been writing, you know, an epic. Uh, I'd have had and to so stop there was no point draft. going <laughs> Right. So there was no point in adding, it was no point in availing ourselves of the 2,000 words we had left because I wouldn't have been able to add any more without throwing in plot points that have been dangling. So at some point, you, you, when you've told the story, you can tell without it turning into a 
enormous, something enormous. I did tell a few that were right around the 5K mark. Um, I think I want to say choices was probably um, that that threw me for a second. I don't, I don't have any idea what you're talking. I don't even know what any of that means. Um, no, I, I understand the context. I just don't understand. Okay, so um, <clears throat> so one of the questions, one of the things that um. Susan asked, is you get an idea that looks good on the surface, but it turns into a massive time and energy suck. And this happens. This mm. happens. It honestly sometimes doesn't matter how experienced you are. Sometimes you get surprised by the one that turns into a time and energy suck. Um, I will say the more you get used to plotting, the more you begin to spot that. And I will say as a pantser, probably if your pantser is going to be hard for you to, to tell until you're neat deep in it and if you don't like if you're i don't, I don't know susan are you a pantser you're here right i can't remember i, I can't remember what anybody is but lady holder <laughs> she's here and she, she was here i think she's here she was here i don't know if she's still here oh she's a pantser uh, yeah. so susan's she's a in lady holder's oh, basket okay here's here's the thing about if you aren't if you aren't able to recognize the plotter, typically plotters will do several than an idea. It's like, oh, this is going to be much bigger than I thought when I first conceived it during the plotting process. Now, sometimes you actually get into the writing and that's when you discover it, but I would say most of the time you're out in the plotting process. As a pantser, you're probably going to trip knee deep into it um, more often than not. If, if you don't recognize it at conception, you're going to notice it in the execution. You're going to either notice it when that baby's conceived, or you're going to notice it when that baby's being born. You're not going to notice it during the gestation period. Um, so you, you took that metaphor way too far. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you just went. You just went right in all, all in on it. It's like you hold her. I'm not picking on you. Your process is valid, a hundred percent. But there is an innate difference about how we do these things. And because I used to pants when I was when I first started writing, um, and pants even probably well in my early twenties, I'm familiar with how to compensate for the problems with pantsing. Ultimately, it just became less work for me to plot. Um, than to comp for me to compensate for the problems because I would have really big epic ideas and it was so time consuming to um what what is the bubble part here oh me and the tea lady probably oh oh as okay um <laughs> but if you're if you're a pantser a lot of times you stumble into oh this is much more than I wanted to deal with when you're writing and what I would say is Give yourself permission to just have that moment and go, wow, I know I'm 10K into this, but this is more than I want to deal with right now. Make yourself some thorough notes so you understand where you are, where you were going, what your thoughts were, why you're kind of stopped. Because it's, that's one of the problems with pantsers who put something aside. If they don't make notes, sometimes they go back and they don't have any idea what the fuck was going on. So you gotta give yourself a, you gotta give yourself some breadcrumbs to track back and say, this is why I stopped because I realized and literally give yourself a narrative about what you realized. I realized that this idea is gonna be big because of these reasons, and that at this point in my life, this isn't something that I want to pursue because I have an hour a day to write, not five hours a day to write. And 
give yourself that room and that permission because a lot of times this is really a not judging yourself and giving yourself permission to start a project and put it aside. And it's not that you're giving up on it. It's not that you failed. It's you're going, this doesn't work for me now. A plotter might recognize that when they're plotting. A pantser might not recognize it until they're in the writing. And like what Thesis just said, be kind to yourself, accept that this is a part of your process. And if you give yourself that that breadcrumb and that little bit of a narrative about why you you know, what your thoughts were about where the story was going, what you realized about how big it is and what you would want to do to real, because sometimes the issue is not that you couldn't write the story, but that you see this bigger vision for it. And if you want to realize it to its full potential, it's going to be a much bigger investment than you want to put in right moment. And you can say, I realized that this story could be so good, but it's going to be 180K, and I don't have that right now in me. I want to write something simple and fluffy, so I'm setting this aside until I can give it more or until it doesn't feel like a burden. Because sometimes that idea that you go, oh, it's such a good idea, but it feels more like a burden than a creative endeavor. If it's feeling like a burden, this may not be the right time for it. And so I like that this isn't in my writing budget right now. And that's okay. It's not a failure to say, this just isn't it for me today. It's not a problem to say, that 100K idea is not where I'm at. I want 5K of fluff. That is, that is where I am. I have a panorama to deal with. I want fluffy things that are short. Hello, 911 fandom. I don't want 100K of angst. Hello, Harry Potter. Um, it's okay to make those choices. So you have this great idea, but maybe you don't have the emotional wherewithal to realize it right now. Make some notes, put it aside, and someday you might have the emotional wherewithal. And if you've left yourself some good notes, you go back and you reread that, you're really fired up about it, you've got extra time to write, you're like, I'm going to kick this out for this work in progress bang. Um, it's going to be great. And I've got all these notes that explained what I thought could happen and what I thought the potential of the story was. So I'm just going to pick up and run with it. And you got to give yourself the acceptance to let that happen. The problem I run into with fandom writers is that um, they, they get frustrated if they write something and they can't post it. I'm not saying all fandom writers, but a lot of fandom writers. Um, well, I know original authors, or, or original fiction writers, who are embarrassed to have more than one work in progress. I remember once in a room revealing that I had over 30 works in progress, and people's mouths dropped open like I had just revealed that I masturbate. You know, when you were young and you were afraid to admit that, like like it was something shameful? Or, or are some of you guys still there? Because... Babies, no, it's fine. Treat yourself. It's really fine. <laughs> okay. <It doesn't>. So, <laughs> if you wish to. Okay. So, people were appalled that I was admitting to having all these works in progress. And I'm like, what? And they said, well, well, what do you do with them? I said, I write them. I write them and I finish them. And they were like, well, how many? And like, I had already at that point in my life finished like 20 novels. I said, I don't have a problem finishing a project. Sometimes I just don't want to work on something. So I work on something else. What do you guys do? They, yeah, a lot do of them didn't. And a lot of them didn't speak at all, which meant they did have works in progress and probably had a giant folder just like me, but didn't want to admit it. 
Because apparently it was something shameful. People are so weird. Which, I have works in progress and I treat myself. That's what I do. <laughs> I just treated myself to a brand new vibrator. Because <laughs> I'm did an you adult. See that, did you see that but new Some Mama people Lula are just crazy out? about that kind of thing. No, but I'm open to. Um, I saw it. At it. Oh, sweet baby Jesus. But there are drugs, there are people even in fandom who only have one work in progress at a time. And that is legitimate if it works for you. But if you are still writing the same story 10 years from now, that's not working for you, baby. If it takes you, honestly, if you're writing three to four hours a day and you can't hammer out a novel in about six months. I mean, I could hammer out a novel in about three months if I'm writing three or four hours a day, right? But if you're still working on the same project six months from now and you're nowhere near finishing and you're writing a novel-length project and not some 500,000K epic that you think that you need to write, um, which you don't, by the way. I'm clicking on that. Um, but uh, that's a problem. That um, your, your process isn't working for you. If you never get to the end, that single work in progress is not working for you. And my goal as a writer, for me, is to write the end on a regular damn basis. Yeah. I mean, I do know authors that are stalled out for years. And that's my personal not goal, not like a public goal. Right. Even if I don't post it, the story, I just like to get to the end. I have a ton of stuff that's finished that just needs to be edited. But there are writers that I know that are stalled out for years on the same work in progress because they will not move on until that work in progress. And even though they feel like they can't write on that work of progress. What is the point of that? So it's just like, that's, that's where I would that's say. That's kind of masochism that I cannot endorse. That is where I would say having, working on only one story at a time is not working for you. If you've stalled out for three years, it ain't working, baby. If you consistently are working on one story and finishing one story, working on one story and finishing a story, great. It's working. It works for you. That process works for you. And that is legitimate. But if it's not working, if you're not completing projects, then stop being mean to yourself. The Enigma. That looks... It's got the sonic, the ultrasonic, clearal sucker thingy, and an internal G-spot simulator. That's actually kind of intimidating. <laughs> that, is, that is all that and a bag of chips. I want one, but it's 200 bucks. <laughs> It's $200. But, you know, honestly, I mean, I think this is kind of a tool that would be really overstimulating for most people. Because that's going to hit you Maybe. in the same spot internally and externally, basically. I mean... Maybe. I mean, you wouldn't know until you tried it, though. And I really want to try it. <laughs> it looks like one of those guns on the SG-1. Yeah, it does. I mean, I saw it and I felt like that... I felt like I heard the angels, yeah, exactly. too, So I You cracked me up. I mean, I have the Sona, which is just the, the, the clitoral part of it, right? <laughs> That's what you give me the stranger just look like. What are you talking about? Um, if you saw it for the mailing this, you get 50% off your first purchase. Honey, that wouldn't be her first purchase. <laughs> you're, you're cute. <laughs> but I could, that's pretty bad for me. It'd be her first purchase. She had 30 bucks hey, off. Hey, hey. You, if if you do purchase it, we would we we would appreciate some consumer feedback. Yes, if anybody gets it, I I would desperately like to know 
Yeah, Alias is the first one that stuns you. The second orgasm kills you. The third <laughs> orgasm, white, you know, erases all traces of your existence. <laughs> but yeah, don't be afraid to have a work in progress, and don't be afraid to masturbate if you want to masturbate. <laughs> if you had no desire to masturbate, that is perfectly okay as well. <laughs> I personally like it, so I will do what I'm going to do. Just like I'm going to plot. Use a review an unboxing video. I, I'm not gonna. There probably that, already is a unboxing video for that toy on YouTube. I'm sure. But when I got the email for that, I was like, "Sweet baby Jesus, I need one." Not literally. I'm not going <laughs> to actually expect one to get one from Jesus because I don't really expect to get anything. But anyway, um, so back to the questions. Um, so. What, okay, say so, you have an idea and you come across, you're, you're in the writing, you're panting your ass off, as one does, apparently. Just kidding. Y'all love y'all. Um, and, you, and you hit a point that's difficult. You've got a ripple that you didn't anticipate. Um, you've, you've hit a wall. What do you do? Now, one of the things that I learned early on is not to throw in front of my character an obstacle I don't have a solution for. So don't keep writing. You're going to write yourself into a hole or into a corner. Take a look at that ripple at that moment that you've got the problem, right? And figure out the solution before you continue writing. And if the solution is insane, you and frankly, it honestly often is. You, you don't have a solution. Um, so you need to figure out how to mitigate that circumstance before you get there, which means you might have to back up and look at your work in progress and either add some scenes, take out some scenes, add a character to mitigate that circumstance, which I don't often recommend editing in the middle of a project. But when you hit a wall like this, that could be your only solution. If you want to keep the project and just do the minimum amount, don't go hog wild on your editing, do what you need to do to insert the solution to the problem you see coming, figure out how to make it happen. Then do your little edits that you have to do little edits, then start writing again and see where you go. This is, this will become an experiment. So at this point you have to prepare yourself for it. Failure for it not to work. And it is perfectly okay for something not to work. But you're not going to know until you try. But the worst thing you can do, either as a panther or a plotter, is to keep writing until you get there. And, and, and to, until you get to that point where you don't have any options. Because you've not planned for any options and you have no choices left. So that's just, you know, my my perspective on that. I wrote a long time ago tips for panthers thing. Um, and one, that was one of the tips is don't don't put a problem into your story that you don't know the um, way you're going to deal with it, how you're going to get out of it, because that's how you wind up with. Uh, that's why you, that's how you wind up with so many Harry Potter stories. Like how in the world Harry the audience and they're scratching them, their head going, "How's Harry going to get out of this?" And because you, you as the audience cannot possibly see a way. Well, guess what? The, the author can't either. Because the story um, is now two hundred k, and it's been discontinued and hasn't been updated in ten years. It's because they can't figure out how to get themselves out of the, the hole that they wrote themselves into. They put so many obstacles in Harry's path um, that they couldn't, they couldn't keep going. So, but 
one of the part of Susan's question was, um, how can you tell when the idea itself is the problem versus when you should push through and solve the issue? Sometimes you can only get that through distance. Because the question is, how do you know? Distance is one way to know. And the other way to know is to get a, some, some secondary, a secondary back. Get, get somebody to look over the idea, talk out the idea. If you don't have an alpha reader, just talk through the idea with somebody. Um, but be careful. If you, yes, you've got to be careful about who you trust with it. This part of your process, this is kind of the formative part of, part of your process, the creative part of it. You got to be careful who you trust with that. Um, hmm. She's killing me. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, you have to be really careful who you trust because if you trust the wrong person, they'll tear your idea to shreds and make you feel like shit. And I've had that experience. We've all had that experience in, in some form or another, whether it's about writing or about something you want to do with your life. You know, there's there's always that one person who's not happy unless you're miserable, and they exist in writing groups. Lord, do they exist in writing groups. On the other side of it is, is you might have some asshole take your idea and write it before you can. Yeah. So there you hasn't been times idea, when I... Legally. But there is this ethical concern where someone takes the product of your mind and writes it before you can. It's a shitty feeling. It is. And it, it makes them an like asshole. Does it? It's it's sort of the, it's idea theft for sure. If you've laid out, especially if it's if it's just a generic. Also, there's degrees of ideas, right? There's sort of a generic. Um, boy generic, meets girl. Comes online boy and girl fall in love. Pretty generic. Um, but boy meets girl, girl fall in love. Boy and girl get married. That is super generic. So if you told somebody you had an idea to write a story like that, and they ran off and wrote that ahead of you and you get butthurt about it, I'd go, exactly, what are you butthurt about? Because There's, that's like the course of every... that idea off from early. every romance <laughs> novel in existence, right? But, but <laughs> people will think that the product of their brain is super, super, everything that comes out of their brain is super, super original, and that's like, um, you do realize <laughs> yeah, that that's already they're like been done? Seven stories. There there are seven stories, in an infinite, or nine, depending on who you ask, so, a way of, doing, is, of, of, of writing. Something is really generic. Um, or even if, and honestly, if, if an idea can be encapsulated in one sentence, it probably is not all that specific. It is rare that I see an idea that is super specific that can be encapsulated in one sentence. It, it does happen. But when you've really shared, like, what amounts to an abstract of your story with somebody, you give them, like, all the details where you're going, and, and they go off and they they write that. It's like you've basically outlined the story for them. And that is idea theft to me. Somebody just mentioning, you know, one sentence, um, you know, what if Eddie came online while he was down in that, uh, when he was buried underground? Uh, and then somebody else goes off and writes that. Uh, it's too generic. It's too generic to count, in my opinion, to count as what I would qual you know, qualify as, a, as an idea. But anyway. Um, but I do see people sometimes in fandom, usually not writers, get really wrapped around the axle about a single sentence. And it's like, you do realize that idea has actually already been written, right? Like, no, it hasn't. I'm like, yeah, it has. <laughs> but okay. Let me show you. Let me show you all the links to this and how you're wrong, because I am that person. <laughs> I, did that. I did that to somebody once. Um, not about this conduct, but the person who wrote me. And they were defending Kira's honor, so at least I was not a complete asshole to them. 
they thought they were defending <laughs> Y'all, I don't, I don't need my honor um, defended, y'all. But they wrote me to tell me, uh, you basically talked about myself for stealing all Kira's idea from her Sentinel world building. And by that, they meant the spirit animals, prides. And I was like, are you kidding me? So I was like, I get it. They're a big fan of Kira. They're trying to protect her virtue or whatever. Um, so I just sent them links to... So I took them links to like 10 or 15 stories that were that had those tropes in them that existed before you ever entered fandom and said, you know, happy hunting. Um, <laughs> it was just like, you know, it's just like, um, I, I hope you will re think about yourself in the future because it's just, it was ridiculous. Here's some data, you know, go ahead. Think about yourself right now. Sometimes um, I think assumptions are the worst part of fandom. Um, and how people respond to their own assumptions about what they see and read, um, what they believe to be true, um, what they hear on this podcast and what they think it means. Um, because honestly, and I think this is probably true for everybody, but it is most especially true for me. I say less than 5% of what I think, maybe 10 if I'm in a, in a if I'm throwing a mad, okay? <laughs> But I don't say everything I think. I don't reveal every idea I have. I have a super original idea that I want to write for Quantum Bang that I have seen nobody do. Nobody. And I scoured the fandoms looking for this. And I have not seen anybody do what I want to do. And I'm super excited about it. And I would not share it with you guys for any reason. Well, a million dollars. <laughs> If someone wants to give me a million dollars, I will share my idea with you. <laughs> so, because I don't want anybody to write it before and, I do. And then probably come up with a different idea. This just is banging. Well, I, I would still write it. I would just share it. <laughs> I'm still like, going to okay, write it. It just wouldn't be about quantum so, bang. Sometimes, I mean, I don't know. Sometimes I might, I might go, okay, I got my million dollars. I'm going to go off and find another idea now. But it just it depends on how I feel about it. Um... <laughs> But we have had people, like, we had, we had this heifer once, and I, I do mean heifer, um, email, uh, email me, and um, I cc Jilly on the response about our Hannibal podcast, um, where they accused us of fetishizing cannibalism, um, they accused us of approving of cannibalism, and just, just went, they just went off just went off. I mean, it was awful. And how that I was accused of triggering them. I'm like, honey, the damn podcast was labeled leaning into Hannibal. What the fuck did you think it was going to be about? Anyways, it was awful. It actually threw me off my game. And it's the reason I'm, it, it just, it threw me off. And I actually had several Hannibal projects in, in progress that I set aside because I was so irritated and frustrated with this person who has apparently no has zero ability to separate reality from fandom and, you know this is actually a really big fucking problem for a lot of people in fandom they don't know how to separate actors from characters or characters from actors they don't know how to separate writers from the content my characters say shit all the time that i would never say in a million years and sometimes yeah, they say shit that i absolutely would say i mean but I, I had a kill list for Darkly Lowell, and no one is telling me I'm fetishizing murder, but probably someone, but, will, probably someone will but, now. But the thing I fundamentally don't understand, and it's come up more than once, is that when we start talking about Hannibal on a podcast, if you're triggered by the concept, why would you keep listening? Right? We started containing the discussions about Hannibal a little bit more carefully. We're not going to actually get into the details 
to Hannibal tonight, so don't feel like you need to mute. But we've, we started, you know, warning people we're going to talk about Hannibal, so you know, so that people can opt out. But uh, if we're full on into talking about it, and we're doing a plot, we're plotting about it, or we're, and in this case, you know, we were plotting a story. Why, why would you be listening to this if this is a trigger for you? I just, I can't, I can't even. But anyway. Um, Here's the thing about me. I will write things that I would not do. I wrote Darkly Loyal. Um, I I have I have written. Um, I mean, there's actually the version of John Shepard and what might have been is probably the most fucked up version of John Shepard I've ever written. Yes, he's yes. His, yeah, he's a fucking sociopath. He's, he's, he's pretty much. I, I was he's he's high on, on the scale. Yeah, he's he's high on the scale. Um, yeah, yeah. He, I. I'm not a violent person. I don't like to watch it. I tend to shy away from it. I will write it um, when it's appropriate for the circumstances. Um, I actually equate murder with cannibalism. I don't see a difference between the two. They're both heinous and disgusting. Okay. So if, you know, I mean, I literally see no difference between them. Cannibalism might be considered the final insult when it comes to murder, but it's no worse than murder. You ending somebody's life is no worse than eating their body when you're finished killing them, okay? I If you don't agree with me, that's fine. But literally, it's no fucking different. You've destroyed their life. Now you're destroying their body. It it literally, to me, is no fucking different. Tab, taboo? They're both taboo. They're both illegal most of the time. Well, cannibalism should always be illegal. But you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying? I mean, the, um, the murder is I really the see no difference People between the two. We get really wrapped around the axle about the, um, about the, the cannibalism access aspect, but not the murder. Which, okay, I mean, I get it. I get it, the cannibalism triggers them, and so that's what they're getting upset about. But, you know, I can't, I mean, I can't take care of everybody on the internet. Anyways. I give, but, I give warning on my stories. Um, but, you know, it's like in one of my stories, um, I actually felt like I had to put an off to it. I think, I think I have Bucks Wear or something in front of Christopher or whatever. And I was like, you know, I'm going to hear about it from somebody that Bucks Wear is in front of Christopher. Look, there is not a child in my life um, I have not cussed in front of. Right. But the thing is, is, you know, I shouldn't have to give you a disclaimer about a character's values are not necessarily my own personal values. Um, but the, it's weird. People will let me write a character murdering somebody and they won't say boo about it, as Kira pointed out. But other things, they're going to be all up in my griddle. I once had somebody send me a litany oh, no, of it was in, it problems was in, that they the had room. with ties that bind. They have a ties that bind. And they mentioned everything but the but the actual, like, when John kills somebody. I was like, so I wrote back, I said, so you have a problem with the consensual spanking and the consensual anal sex and the consensual submission, but you don't have a problem with John breaking a person's neck in the middle of a court proceeding. Okay. Just so we're clear. Sure, Dan. And you also didn't have a problem with Kevin Jordan getting flight alive because it wasn't in your list, but you do have a problem with all the consensual activities that take, that take, that take place in my, um, but the two the two instances in my story, which were done against the will of the person that it happened to, which was non-consensual, Kevin Jordan did not say, okay, you can fly me alive. And that dude did not tell John, okay, you can kill me now. I mean, he brought that shit on himself, both of them. But they sure didn't give their consent for it, right? But she had a whole list of problems with me 
And also, at the very end, I asked her, if you had all these problems with my giant BDSM fic, why the fuck did you read it? Right, exactly. If you don't like BDSM, what is your deal? Also, the story that they were uh, that I had to put that one on was The Dark Road, because uh, Dot calls um, Cunt in front of Cora. And I was like, I'm going to hear about this from somebody. Um, and uh, I just so I put up an author's note about, you know, because uh, I didn't want to hear about it. And part of it is the women really wrapped around the axle, particularly about cunt being used like that. So I love I that word. Somebody about this. It's a great yeah. word. It's neat and tidy. Pussy just sounds sloppy. I I, I inflate for cunt to pussy, but um, and it's multifunctional. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to actually be called either one of them as an insult. But um, I don't have. I don't have problem either one of them being used in a sexual context. But I don't have a problem with kind of being used as an insult, though. I mean, I've well, I don't want to be called one personally, but I will definitely call somebody else one. I don't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I said they get all up in my, my grill about using content as an insult because um, they said, and I was like, well, as long as I'm continuing to use dick as an insult, I don't really feel like I've got a hypocrisy problem, so just fuck off. Um, right. And I do. Yeah. So until, until all the genitals are off the table is insult. And also, my favorite insult is actually asshole. So. So, okay. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> but I, 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 put up, I put up an author note that basically said... Um, I love that cunt struck. Characters acting, <laughs> yeah. I said, I write characters acting in morally questionable ways, and it's not intended to be tacit approval of that sort of thing or a reflection of my personal hobby time. Weirdly, people won't question my personal values when I have a character commit murder, but they will think that I'm personally misguided when I have the same character swear in front of a child. Um, like, it's like, do you... Do you hear yourself? I had a cousin who wanted to name their cat Pussy. His wife wouldn't let him. No. And she was like, she was like, no, you are not naming our kitten Pussy. And he's like, but it's perfect. She's a pussy cat. She said, okay, do you want to be the one when the cat gets out of the house to be shouting Pussy down the road? The cat didn't get named Pussy. <laughs> no. Because that's how you get arrested. Here, Pussy, Pussy, Pussy. <laughs> Actually, here, pussy, 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 pussy is would not get you arrested, but pussy, pussy, pussy come home, that will get you arrested. <laughs> pussy, where are you, pussy? But he, me, yeah, he, he, he always, he always wants to name his his pets terrible, explicit names. So. Um, of course, he's also that jackass who has a picture uh, that has a pair of testicles on his truck. You've seen that, right? Uh, yes, I hate that. But you know, whatever. People are gonna do what they're gonna do. I'm gonna try to see if we got all aspects of this question. Have we? Have we? Um, I do think that you know the first level of it is when you start recognizing an idea doesn't work for you. That's great. We can move on. Um, the next step is to try to catch it earlier in your writing cycle that an idea isn't going to work for you. But if you started working on it, I think it, a lot of times it comes down to um, being kind to yourself about do you want to keep going with this? Now, sometimes an idea does fall apart on you. It, it just falls apart. 
you've got a big plot hole or it's going to take so much to fix it that it basically is a rewrite. Um, and don't be afraid to just call it like it is. And a lot of times I get some outside perspective on that, but once I've hit that point where I'm pulling a story apart and starting over, you know, I'm, I'm going to do some bits of dialogue here or there, but basically it, it was a clusterfuck. Just let it be what it is and move on. And that happens. And I've done like I've done a lot of alpha reading, and sometimes and alpha reading. There are times there was there was a time there was one week where I, I think I had to. It was like all my alpha reading kind of coalesced in like the same week, and I had to give alpha feedback to like four or five people in the same week. And um, had to give. <laughs> Sounds like it was a chore, except that like three of them had like really big structural problems in them, and they were asking me to help them. With is there a problem in here? I feel like there's a problem. Could you help me spot it? Kind of thing. And I'm like. Oh boy, I really hate telling somebody that they've they've fallen into a plot crater and they're gonna have to back way the fuck up to get out of it. Um, and I'm I try to be really careful about how I deliver that kind of news to somebody. I don't just go, "Oh, your story's fucked. You're gonna have to start over." <laughs> that's rude. I feel like that you might tell me that. Though. I don't even do that. Ever. You can tell me that. I might. Um, well, I, mean, I, I want you to that. Wouldn't even do that in a professional setting. <laughs> I, I, I might say, did you hit your head last night before you went to bed? I mean, what, what's happening last night? No, but no. Um, try to be careful about how I, you know, tell somebody that they've got a major structural problem. And I try to, like, sometimes I'll try to lead them to it. Like, well, what was your intention here? Or what were you thinking? Or where were you going with this? Or, um, but sometimes it's just, you've got some big ripples that, when we think about what these things mean that you've put at this stage in your story, by the time we get to where your story fell apart in your mind, it's because the consequences of those things you did at the very beginning are manifesting, and you know that what you're writing doesn't make sense with what you start where you started with. And there's just sometimes there's just no way but to say you've got a big plot hole. Or you, your character's motivations are in conflict. And I had somebody ask me to alpha read for them a couple months ago, where they were very explicit that they only wanted plot feedback. They're very careful to tell me they only wanted plot feedback. The problem was is that their plot hole was caused by their characterization. Oops. And I was like, I, they, 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 they tied my hands in my ability to talk to them about what the issue was was because if they hadn't made certain characterization choices they wouldn't have fallen into a plot crater and i said I, there is some plot issues but they're tied to some characterization choices so i, I don't know that we can talk about it because you were very explicit you didn't want anything but plot feedback she said no i i i, I, I like my characters the way they are okay I don't have anything to say because there's no way for me to tell, talk to you about what the problems are if we don't address your characterization choices. There's just no way to do it. But the, the other the other side of this is is that when you are getting an alpha read, that it is perfectly okay to be as explicit as possible as possible about what you want to receive back. This is a healthy boundary for this author to set. Um, yes, but also it you don't get resulted to in her not getting any feedback at all. But Right, but you don't get to be upset when you don't get the feedback you want because you tied the alpha reader's hands. Now, I respected her boundary, and I told her that the 
the the plot consistency issues I saw stemmed from character choices. And if she doesn't want to talk about the characterization issues, then I couldn't help. And she said, I don't want to talk about characters. I want to talk about plot. I said, then I can't help you. So we didn't talk about it. There was nothing. It wouldn't be a waste of my time. And I don't think I don't think I would ever actually. I learned from it that if somebody told me they didn't, they only wanted plot feedback. I don't think I would ever take a that like that again. It was a learning experience for me, just because plot and character are so interconnected that if your character makes a bad choice and it creates a ripple that causes a plot hole, and telling me, telling you, telling an alpha reader, I don't want to talk about my characters. I, I would never let myself. I mean, it's one thing to say I don't want to hear about. I don't want you to critique my style. I don't want you to talk about my, my dialogue mechanics. I don't want to talk about this, that, or the other. But to say, to take something as interconnected as plot and character and say, you can only talk about one half of it and tell me what my plot hole is, but don't tell me about my characters and how they relate to my plot hole. I, I was honestly an idiot for accepting those limitations. They weren't, they weren't wrong for putting limitations out there, but I should have gone, oh, okay, I can't work with that. You when, know what I mean? When, yeah, I agree. I would be hesitant as well because GMC is so integral to plot. And if the character's GMC is off and they're doing things that are inserting, you know, big giant ass boulders into the plot, it's a problem. But for me, I think a lot of people don't know what an alpha reader is versus a beta. So when someone asks you for an alpha read, they're not asking you to line edit their story. And if they are, they're not asking for an alpha, they're asking for a beta. And you can tell them that you don't do that. Um, an alpha, for me, in my mind, looks at characterization, they look at plot, they look, and they look for consistency. Yeah, um, sometimes I would go, I, would, hey. I want my alpha to say, hey, you know what? This is this is good, this is good, this is good. But hey, this part right here, when Tony landed in the past and had zero reaction to it, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes um sometimes i will i will get an alpha read specifically who has canon expertise um in a canon maybe either that i don't know well or that i'm new to or um or just that it's a big intimidating canon um when i wrote um unobstructed views um star kindler did an alpha read for me on on canon side of it to just and I, and I was very specific. What I would like to know is if there, and what I said was, I would like to know if anything I have written contradicts canon in any particular way, because I would like to understand what those contradiction points are. Um, and that's what I asked for, and that's what I got. So I was very specific about what I needed. Um, I had an alpha read. For, I've had two alpha reads for my um, Quantum Banks this year. Um, this is my first time in Star Wars or The Mandalorian. And um, so I, one of my alpha readers is a giant Star Wars fan. Giant Star Wars fan. Um, and so they know a lot about uh, canon and Legends canon. Um, the books, the, the movies, the, the cartoons, all of it. Um, and so there were a lot of elements in my story for the Mandalorian that I kind of pulled from Star Wars, both legends and otherwise, but I wanted to put them in the story in a way that didn't require previous knowledge for, for readers who, or, who are barely know the Star Wars canon or don't know the Star Wars canon at all. Uh, so I was very specific about what I wanted and I got exactly what I wanted. <laughs> Because okay, this, this, and this, you know, and it was great. So that's what you just be very explicit with a with a with an alpha. And the le the the least ex specific you are, honestly, I've discovered the worst experience is. 
Yeah. And you're allowed to set any kind of boundary you want. A lot of times I'll give um, the bitches something that I'm working on. I was like, okay, I don't actually want any feedback, but like grammar or anything, or this is not ready for beta. Can you just read me and just tell me if it's stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't spell check. <laughs> Because I would never actually send something to somebody to beta that hasn't been spell checked. But you know what I mean? So there's a difference between, hey, yeah. read this. It's like throwing something at somebody and say, hey, read this and tell me if it sucks. Kind of the writer equivalent. Oh my God, this smells terrible. Smell it. <laughs> <laughs> and you do. <laughs> As one does. Read this and tell me if it smells. It doesn't smell. You're okay. Although once I'm a little troller, she said, it's not stupid. <laughs> Which fair? Which fair? That's all you asked for. Wait, wait. That it? That's it? No, really, it was great. <laughs> <laughs> Can I have some more explicit feedback, please? <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes she can be really literal <laughs> if you catch her in the wrong mood, <laughs> or really any mood. <laughs> But when someone gives me a boundary with alpha reading, I um, I try to stick to that boundary. Now, sometimes I, I'm i so used to people saying this, just accepting this is what I want. And me going, okay. That's another I don't stop to think about what they just asked for until I'm putting my thoughts together and going, wait a minute. How in the world am I going to give them feedback and not step all over the, the, the boundary they're giving me? They don't want any GMC feedback. They just want to talk about the plot. Like okay, um, I mean, could you have point? Could, could you have pointed out the plot hole without mentioning the character? Could you just have said this is a plot hole and then moved on? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm not. I'm, I'm just curious. You know, well, like, I, well, I did. She asked me why. I said we need to talk about the character stuff. She said I don't want to talk about that. I'm like, okay. That I, I said there's, a, and that's where we got to with with I can't, we can't, we can't, and then I have nothing I can offer you. If you're going to need me to explain why this is a plot hole, then without going into the stuff you've marked off limits, then just why well, don't want you bringing up anything that's rooted in characterization? I said all plot decisions are rooted in characterization. But it just it was it was it was a bad it was a bad thing. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. And boundaries are healthy, and you have every right to set them. But a rigid boundary like that doesn't make any sense because it tells like, me it tells me that feels like to me it tells me that somebody already knows what the problem is. And, and they want you to give them a different solution. Yeah, they want they want somebody to try to give them another way out of it without without fixing changing something that they don't want to change. Which fine, fine. And sometimes I go into an alpha read, um, and I already know going into it, even if they even if they're willing to hear, like some people are very willing to hear anything, but it's like I already know that they're not going to change anything. It's like I don't even know why they bother asking. They're not going to change a damn thing. So, um, well, what they're looking for every single time they ask you is validation. I don't, they keep I don't, hoping that that next time that they do it, you're going to tell them that it, that it was awesome and there were no problems. Oh, well, I also the thing is, I always just always ask me for an alpha read that they're expecting me to find problems. So I'm looking for the problems. And some people's writing, I have to nitpick to find the problems. But the thing is, I used to get paid to nitpick. So, yeah, um, I can nitpick anything. I um, I can attest to that. I can nitpick the fuck out of something. So if somebody's asking for an alpha read, I figure that they think that there's going to be an issue. Um, I also read for somebody recently. I told them, I said, you know, your writing's on point. All you've given me to do is nitpick. So um, don't take this as um, 
Actually, I was doing an alpha read, um, and and they needed to get some more words in the story, so they were specifically looking for how to um, get their word count up a little bit. Like it's just, what they're specifically asking for was were there opportunities where they could you know add a scene? Was there anything missing? And so I read it with that, and the story was great. Um, craft was on point, characterization was good. So I was looking for where things could be fleshed out a little bit more that would make the story a little bit richer or where things could be smoothed out to help them get a, you know, a little bit more content in the story because they needed to you know, hit a word count. And, um, and there were, were some natural opportunities for that. They weren't contrived. There were some natural opportunities. And so I pointed them out. Um, and I had to, you know, I did, I did say this is kind of nitpicking, but the story is great. So all I've got to do is offer some nitpicky suggestions about fleshing out your characterization here. But I do think it would help with fleshing out characterization to do this, this, or this, or whatever to add these scenes. And they did, and that, you know, I'm, and that's a, that's much more as a as an alpha reader. It's a much, I feel like I'm much more helpful and it feels more rewarding to help somebody where I feel like they're looking for something specific. They're willing to hear what you have to say to fix the problem um, and, and they really want to. So as opposed to somebody who just, you know, I, I don't, I, I never quite, there are people that you never get to the end, you go, I have no idea what that was about. <laughs> well, it just people need to recognize that an alpha read is not for praise. If If, if you want praise, just wait till it posts because that, that that's not what the alpha reader's job is you know so when i throw something at the bitches i'm not asking them to if, if i explicitly say i need an alpha read on this i'm really just seeking you know feedback to make sure i'm not crazy because sometimes i am but also i am my own worst critic so sometimes i'll be like okay would you please tell me if this sucks or not because i feel like it sucks it doesn't suck. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I just need to hear that because I am my own worst critic. I mean, there is stuff on my site that I hate. I hate. But I'm not going to list them because it will give somebody an opportunity to abuse me and to yeah, agree with time, me. Last time I listed, <laughs> the last time I listened to listed the flaws that I saw on a story of my own, I got feedback listing those flaws. I was like, oh, so you listen to the podcast. <laughs> Congratulations on paying attention to the podcast and taking great notes. Um, Heifer. But when it comes to alpha reading is a definitely a, a viable way to go if you are trying to decide if your story, if your problems are insurmountable, if, um, or, or, you know, whatever's going on with your story. If, the, if you should go on, is there a way to, and sometimes, honestly, sometimes the, the issue is, you also need to understand yourself well enough because sometimes the alpha's feedback isn't necessarily wrong, but it just may not be what you want to do. So like, let's say you know that you could execute to your vision uh, the way you see it in 300K, but you just don't want to put that much in. It feels too complex. So you ask for an alpha read to help you with looking over the first th three or four chapters and look over your plot and help you see if you could streamline it. Okay, let's say this is something you asked for. What could I do to make this a little bit simpler, a little bit more straightforward, get it to something a little bit more manageable? And let's say your alpha reader actually is good at this kind of thing, and they help you do that. And you don't like the story idea anymore. It, it doesn't necessarily mean the alpha read went wrong. It doesn't necessarily mean the alpha reader was wrong. It just means that maybe the idea you liked better was the bigger, more convoluted idea. 
And the takeaway from that is, okay, you learned something about this idea, which is that the bigger idea, the more fleshed out idea, the, you know, the one with all the more complicated moving parts and subplots and the, the big ensemble cast is the idea you like. And if that's not something you can commit to right now, put it aside. Just put it aside. It's okay. You don't have to do it right now. Um, and if you want a big, if you want to write a big cracktastic mess, you go ahead and do that. You can do that too. Or you could try to figure out how to structure it into pieces that are a little bit more manageable for you so that you don't have to be trying to write 300K. Because you can write episodes. You could write episodes. You could write a series of connected novellas. You could write, you could write, you could break that up into five novels. Um, there's ways to, to do it that aren't quite so onerous. Um, but it's just, you just got to give yourself permission to, to let it be whatever it is. And if it's not, it, let's it even even if you've put a ton of time and effort into it, and you decide to set it aside, it's not a waste. And this is one of the things I have a hard time getting through to people: is it's not a waste. No writing is wasted. Just because you don't go forward with it does not mean that time was wasted. And just because you don't I, ever post it, I mean, I've probably posted. I have about half of my fan fiction. Half. I've more I have more written I think in fan fiction than I've posted. Um just because I had such a long period of time where I was continuing to write in X-Files where I didn't post. Um and and then I have a bunch of stuff that I've been writing, you know, since 2013 that I haven't posted. So there's definitely more um of the 3 3ish odd million words I've posted in my fan fiction life. Um, three-ish odd million, yeah. Um, there's probably that much or more that I haven't posted, and a, a lot of it I would not touch with with somebody else's ten-foot pole <laughs> anymore. For starters, because a lot of it is X Files, and I I was a very very different perspective back then. Um, but I don't even think I could open it. I think that there are some stories that what I recollect about them that I think it would actually make me physically ill to even read the first line of them anymore. So I think that I would never even touch those folders. So. Wow. Um, but, it, but it's okay to write for yourself, literally, to just write for yourself and not to write to publish. I am honestly people, at my happiest when I'm writing for myself. Just to make yourself happy. And, you know, my Quantum Bang wound up what wound up being my quantum bang was a, was an exercise in just making myself happy. I didn't know if I was ever going to show that to anybody because I just needed to get that out. Frustration. Um, and it wound up being really good and something I felt like I could, I could keep, I could go back to my quantum bang that I was working on and finish it, or I could keep going on this and let it be the quantum bang. And I feel like it's good enough to let it be. What I would say after binging most of the fandom, um, at least in the pairing, I I have read a a great well, deal in the eighty percent of the 85 percent of the fandom is that pairing. So it's okay. So which, I have I have read a large. I mean, I have read a astronomical amount of of fan fiction for um the, the pairing. What I would say is that I've never read anything like it in the fandom. Oh well, that's good. She's read Kira's read more in the fandom than I have. <laughs> Um yeah, I um I sorted by pairing and then I sorted by completed works the first time, went to the bottom of the of the 
6,000 plus fix. Started at the very beginning of the fandom, so to speak, and worked my way up for 10K and above. And then I did it again for um, under 10K. Uh, so, and uh, as long as it didn't have character death or rape, or rape non-con in it, um, I probably at least opened it to try to read it. Can't say I finished it, but I will say I probably opened it. Um, my history on AO3 right now is like 2,500 pages of um, 911. <laughs> Just goes on and on and on. <laughs> on, on, on. Um, so, uh, yeah. Also, it really irritates the shit out of me that my subscription um, list on AO3 is in alphabetical order instead of like by, by, by subscription date. What's in alphabetical order? My, um, my, oh, my subscription list. Oh, subscription list. Yeah, that is annoying. Uh, you should be able to sort it by like when you subscribed or alpha or even by fandom. I'm just saying. I'd yeah. like some more options. Says the bitch who complained about AO3 being so reader-centric. <laughs> well, it's less reader-centric than other places. But there's no doubt There's no doubt that... Um, this um, heifer's just bragging in the chat room about okay, getting yeah. hair tots in the middle of the night. Um... Anyways, um, let's end the podcast. We can keep chatting. Um, I want to um, get some tea, um, but I think we've probably exhausted the topic, if you think so. Yeah, I think that the, my, my big takeaway on this is that um, kind of where we left off with this is that give yourself permission to set it aside. Get a second opinion. Even if it's just somebody you trust to bounce the idea around with. Um, and don't look at it if you do need to set the idea aside. Don't look at it as a loss or a failure or anything like that because there is no writing that's wasted. There is no plotting that's wasted. <coughs> it's just the 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 goal mindedness, the 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 publication mindedness sometimes in fandom is detrimental to the writing process. And I think it's helpful to get out of that mindset and get into a mindset of writing and creativity for the sake of itself as opposed to writing for the sake of publishing it i mean you do what you want to do but um i think that that makes a big difference when it comes to how frustrated people get around ideas that are they're having a hard time with is is what their goal is with that and are they going to feel frustrated and like they wasted quote wasted the time they put into this story if they set it aside and if you're feeling like you wasted time then then I think that's a mind sh mindset shift that you have to, to work on. And that's all I have to say. I too have an air fryer. and I too have tater tots. I have a big yeah. giant bag of tater tots. But you have tater tots. But it was, I do have tater tots. Um, I want to thank you guys for hanging out with us tonight. And I hope that you got something out of it. Um, and uh, we shall catch you later. Say good night, Jillian. Good night, everyone. <laughs>